Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, episode number 20. You know, Oscar, I realized that I usually always start off the episodes by saying, welcome to Teeth and Titanium, episode whatever. Oscar, how's it going? But I just saw you yesterday, so I feel like I know exactly how it's going with you. I feel like this is the first time where I'm like, I'm going to get tired of talking to you. So I talked to you yesterday. We're talking today on the podcast, and I think I got to see you this Thursday again. I know. We have the Ozone's meeting on Thursday. Yeah. So like, even my wife was like, how much are you hanging out with this guy? Yeah. I mean, because... We went out to dinner uh, last night uh, with Sina, who we'll get to later, but uh, we knew that today we were going to record the podcast. We just freed up our schedule. And then we knew that Thursday is the Ozums meeting, but I wasn't sure if you were going to come or not because I know you're busy. But also, you know, speaking of things that are happening, you're you're heading off on vacation on Friday, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to Egypt on Friday. I'm pretty, we're both pretty excited about that. It's been, it's a first big trip, I would say, since COVID. So, and we've been looking forward to it. But yeah, I was not going to go to Ozone's because I leave early on Friday and I was going to pack. And then you were at dinner and you're like, come on, really? How much do you have to pack? And then I also thought, really, how much do I have to pack? So <laughs> so I'm coming to Ozone's on Thursday. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, that's and, great to hear. And it's the residence night, so we should support. They, they really put a lot of work into these presentations and it'll be fun to see everybody. Tell people not from Ontario, what is Ozums and what is Resident Night? Because obviously you're more familiar with it having been in Ontario and having gone to U of T. So Ozums is the Ontario Society of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons for Ontario, which is our province. And it's a great way. They have about four, four or five meetings a year where there's different topics, different presenters. And one of the one of the nights is the residence night. So usually it's a UF, three U of T residents or the chief residents. And most years it had been also the Western residents of so the other oral surgery program in Ontario. And they would give presentations, we would all vote, and then there would be a winner who would get the Dan O'Meara Cup and just get, they would also get a financial award. But it was it was a nice kind of night where the residents showed their presentations, showed cases or presented their masters, and people just got together. It seems like for the last couple of years, maybe because of COVID and it's harder to coordinate, the Western program hasn't attended. So this time it's just going to be the chief residents from U of T, but it should still be a very fun night. Ozum itself does a great job promoting the specialty in Ontario. So going back to these events is really the only way you can show support. So it's, it's if anyone isn't a member right now, you should really join if you are in Ontario. Yeah, we actually talked about them last time, how they were the ones that enabled us to order MRIs starting yeah. this summer. Yeah, and sometimes we don't see the work they do behind the scenes. We just kind of go to the meetings and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know what? They were putting in that work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I didn't notice that because this is going to be my first time going to a resident night ozone's meeting i went to the last ozone's meeting but it's my first resident night so i saw these presentations but i didn't notice they were all from U of T. I was wondering why there's no western resident presenters it's kind of disappointing to be honest you want to see a mix of both programs yeah especially because now you are affiliated with the ft program so you don't really get that much exposure it's nice to see what the residents and the other programs are up to but i think maybe with COVID, it's just been hard to coordinate hmm. yeah interesting speaking of people at uft we mentioned that we went to dinner with cena current fellow obviously and you know, he was saying how, oh, now he's caught up on all the episodes and he's listened to everything. And it's amazing how you, you mentioned Cena once, you mentioned Mohammed a few times, and instantly they're both messaging us saying, oh, I've listened to all the episodes now, oh, I'm fully caught up. My phone was blowing up for Mo. For Mo. And I'm like, yeah, now you, you hear your name once and now you're all over us. 
You're like, I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's not going to get you a guest appearance. Don't think it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but it did, it did make me think strategically from a podcast growth point of view, because we are, you know, we are slowly closing in on our 10,000, you know, plays. Uh, we're almost at 10,000. And I was just thinking one way to grow the listenership is each episode, we just pick a random person and in drop. Canada and just name drop them. Yeah. I think that's like a genius idea. Just pick up anybody be like Doug Ford. Boom. Like, <laughs> no, not, hopefully we name drop an oral surgery person. Yeah. But no, it, it is true. As soon as someone hears their name, they automatically become interested, more interested in the podcast. Exactly. And what's nice is if you say someone's name, if they're, if they're a listener, they laugh and they like it. But if they're not a listener, someone that knows them will reach up and be like, oh, did you hear your name came up on this? And then they start listening and then maybe they spread. It, so it's kind of like word of mouth. The community is small enough that if your name gets talked about on the podcast, someone's probably going to hear it because there's not that many of us here in Canada and they're going to mention it to you. Yeah, exactly. So in the spirit of, uh, we're not going to do this every episode, but in the spirit, since you brought it up, I'm just going to say, Kevin Lung, I'm just going to say that name. I'm not going to talk about him. I'm not going to say anything, but just Kevin Lung. I'm just going to name drop. Like you said, his name has come up in a bunch of our conversations lately. So yeah, it has. Yeah. Off air. Yeah. If that's not a teaser, I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, we'll just say Kevin Lang. We'll see. We'll see organically. Will he find out? Will he message us? Who knows? Teeth and titanium, omfs at gmail.com. We never hear from Kevin Lang again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we uh, ramble too long, let's jump into current events. So, Oscar, we're talking about the listener base and how we're ramping up and trying to, you know, spread to more and more listeners. But What's exciting is we're coming up on our second year anniversary. The next episode that people will hear from us is actually our two year anniversary. It's always in May because that was when we debuted our first episode back in 2020. And it's almost been two years of doing this together. That's actually unbelievable. And I think sometimes it gets lost because we are we were friends before. We were always super close. So I don't realize how much time we've spent on this. But yeah, it's coming up on two years. Yeah, it's been a great two years. I do find time is kind of flying and blending together because even just yesterday you were mentioning, <laughs> I said how this year is my five-year anniversary. I said, isn't your five-year anniversary like next year? And you're like, dude, I haven't even been married a year you're yet. You're like, my, my anniversary is this, like my first year anniversary is this August. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you're like, you were at my wedding yeah. last year. Yeah. I'm like, so but clearly you don't remember my wedding. Like it blows my mind that your wedding was last year. Yeah. Like, and, and, that, and it makes sense because we talked about your engagement in the house and your wedding on on this podcast. So obviously mm-hmm. it ha- had to happen within the last two years, but in my mind, it has to be at least a couple of years. Like it just felt like it had been way longer. No, like, and so I think that did put it in perspective that how much has happened in these two years, married house, you're finishing your fellowship, coming and buying a practice. Like so many things have happened in the last two years. It's, it's been a whirlwind. So things do kind of start to blend together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So uh, very happy for all the support we've been getting, tons of people reaching out. Uh, we are excited for our second year anniversary episode. We have some cool things planned for that again as the anniversary special. And uh, we're always looking forward to next year. You know, more guests, more people. We already have a great bunch of people that reach out to us and some people that we've reached out to that we're trying to line up. So we're always looking for good guests. So if you want to be on the show, reach out to us. Even if you just think there's like a niche topic that, that you, you know, provide you can some t- benefit. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I was um, at the Faces conference and some of the speakers you know, a lot of good times at the conferences, if you notice someone's a good speaker, you can think like, oh, maybe they'd be good on the podcast. But it, it got my brain thinking about, you know, there's so many topics that we have left to go. Like you feel like, oh, it's been two years. When are we going to run out of things to, to talk about? And I'm thinking like, for example, guest episode, something about bone grafting 
or implants. Like we haven't really done that yet. Yeah, like bread That's and butter like oral search stuff. Bread and butter oral search stuff, prior practice stuff. Like we haven't really tapped into that. That would be amazing as an episode. But it is funny you say that because it, it is a fear sometimes when we're like planning or discussing the next one. It's like, are you going to run out of things to talk about? But then you realize well, there is so much to talk about in the specialty that you're probably never going to do. Yeah, it's like, are we going to run out of things? Uh, what are we going to talk about? And then I look at the, you know, episode download when we're about to edit it and like I listen to it, it's like an hour and 57 minutes. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I guess we found <laughs> some stuff to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Next up on current events, something I talked to you about, you know, about the private practice. Obviously, now I'm an owner and I have Dan Amura as my associate, which is amazing. I'd love to hang on to him as long as I can. But, you know, he's looking to slow down eventually, spend more time with his family. I can't blame him. No. So it does mean I'm actually looking for an associate for my prior practice, which is, you know, you can't really go into think. harder than you think, but also you can't really go into super amount of details and things like that. But what I would say is it is going to be a new experience, you know, having to hire someone. I mentioned to you, we had to hire a receptionist, but other than that. And a receptionist is different than an associate, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it is exciting. It also shows that your practice is growing, that you have the time and the ability to fill someone's schedule and cover your days. Like you have a lot to offer. We talked about this last night. You have a lot to offer for someone who wants to be an associate. Yeah. So shout out to the COMS. I use their job board. Really simple. You can reach out to the COMS and they have a, if you go to their website under job board, they list all the current people in Canada that are looking for an associate or a partner or whatever they're looking for. So I submitted an ad there. And I checked your there. listing out today. I was almost going to send you a, uh, a fake one. Like, hey, I'm <laughs> You're going to apply. <laughs> You're going to apply. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Brian Rittenberg, close your ears at this point. Yeah. Don't listen to what Oscar's saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're interested, you can check it out there. Basically looking for an associate. I think it's a great opportunity for anyone that wants to work in the greater Toronto area because, you know, it's private practice. There's a war times, going to be orthognathics, stuff like that. I think people kind of know about my scope and, and what I do. But I, I would check out the, the the ad if you're interested and, and please get in contact with me if you are interested. And this is not me plugging you because you're one of my like one of my best friends. But honestly, I think it is an awesome opportunity for like whether it's someone who's been out in a while or someone who's just coming out and wants to keep their skills and learn new skills. I think you have a lot to offer to it to an associate for sure. I appreciate that, man. And as you said, it could be someone that's working could be someone that's graduating next year. It could be someone that's graduating soon or even graduating in a while. Yeah. Sometimes it's worth waiting for the right person, but you do need to kind of figure this out well in advance because as you said, it's a big deal. I, I would say 100% from like your perspective, it is definitely worth waiting for the right person if you know they're coming and you know they're committed because getting a, a good associate that you can count on is so valuable. It's, it's like, it just makes a huge difference in your practice. And there's not that many in Canada. You know, we no. said there's eight, you know, residents that graduate here from Canada, a lot more from the U.S., obviously, but not a ton of oral surgeons. Yeah. And, and out of the eight, how many are going to stay in the GTA? Exactly. Yeah. How many are from the GTA or want to stay in the GTA? So I just thought I'd announce that. If you're interested, definitely reach out to me. I look forward to hearing from you. And the last thing we want to talk about was, you know, big news. We're, we're big oh. sports fans. We're big soccer fans. We both play soccer. And we, we can't not talk about this. Canada qualifying for the World Cup. Unbelievable. The, the, he, amazing news. Yeah. Even though like it wasn't the flashiest end to a World Cup qualifying, like we lost two or three, I almost feel like after we qualified, we just didn't care anymore. Or we and we're of, missing our best player. Yeah, exactly. We're kind of missing arresting players and taking it easy. Like, what's the point? You're already through. Why you and, and we're playing games that don't matter as much. But it was still so exciting to actually see Canada qualify to the World Cup. And more than, I mean, obviously qualifying was awesome, but it was just more having watched 
and played soccer my entire life. I've never watched Canada and thought like this is for the World Cup. Like this is a legitimate tournament. That, like we could yeah. be in the World Cup. Like, no. It just and it so blows my mind. I like I was I was born in Canada, but my parents are South American. So my mom is from Ecuador and my dad is from Uruguay. So growing up, so you're I, used to seeing your team. I, I will say I never cheered for Canada. Like mm -hmm. for hockey, you always cheer Canada, but I never even thought of, of of Canada when it came to soccer because I had two countries, especially Uruguay, that has some significant soccer history. This was the first time I'm like, wow, Canada's actually doing the same thing. Like they're going to go to the World Cup. And Uruguay, you know, they're an amazing South American team. They're in the World Cup, obviously. And I know so many of their players because there's so many famous players on the team. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny country. Oh, I mean, that's how tiny it is. Three million people. And how, they, how they have such good soccer players? I guess that's, they're in South America. That's all they do, right? Like, do you play any sports? It's like, what do you mean? Do we play soccer? That's the only sport. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. They're not playing ice hockey down there. No, like any other sport gets named, even like a warm sport, they're like, well, I don't know what that is. Yeah, fair enough. I guess if everyone's focused on one sport. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you was, if Canada met Uruguay at some point in the knockout rounds, who do you cheer for? This sounds horrendous, but I will cheer for Uruguay. Why does that sound horrendous? It's like, you like know, well, like because because if you ask me the same question, if if Canada's playing Uruguay in hockey, which would never happen, who would I cheer for? And I would pick Canada. But it's just mm. because that's the history I have, right? Like I've I've cheered for Uruguay my whole life watching soccer since I grew mm. up. That's what I would do with my family. Same thing with when the Olympics or with hockey, I would watch Canada. So that's what I'm used to. But it kind of sounds like oh, I'm just picking the better team. So it kind of sounds horrible. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. It's your it's your it's your heritage. If Canada played India, I would wearing my india jersey you would eh oh 100 oh okay that's that's good to know too yeah i i wouldn't be that upset though if canada won but if you had to say oh who are you gonna cheer for i would pick india because that's funny because if you ask me who do i cheer for if canada's playing ecuador which is where my mom is from but i really never cheered for them growing up because i always cheered for uruguay i would say mm. canada you're a strange individual yeah 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 i don't have that problem because both my parents are indian so i don't so, have to have so you multiple... win that one <laughs> yeah i don't have to have multiple loyalties and you're different like no, no, it's just india everything so you're going to go to the World Cup? Honestly, I have been looking into it quite a bit, especially since Canada qualified. And, and again, Canada's qualified, Ecuador's qualified, and Uruguay's qualified. Like, oh, my God. You got to go. So I'm contemplating. But Qatar is a tiny country. And I don't know if you've looked it up. There are zero accommodations in November. Like zero. Yeah. So my brother wants to go. He applied for tickets. And, you know, he lived in India for like five years. And he said it's cheaper to stay in Bombay and just fly over. Wow. Yeah. I'd be down. Like if you go, if you and your brother go, I'm 100% I down. I, I, I won't be going. So if your brother goes, I'm 100% down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've you already talked before, uh, even on this podcast, how many conferences and stuff I'm going to and how much time I have to take off. My wife, wife will murder is, me yeah, if so I then your ask. Your wife yeah. is nice, my friend. We talked about this last night at dinner. Yeah, she's super understanding. The last thing I can say is, oh, by the way, hey, can I go to the World Cup as well? <laughs> I'll be gone for two weeks. Let me know. <laughs> yeah. In the busiest time of the practice. Yeah, and then, so that's another thing, too. Another reason why I'd be hesitant is it is the end of November, all December, right? So mm -hmm. do you really want to be losing out on that kind of time in the practice? Probably not. Big opportunity cost. Yeah, but something to keep an eye on. If, if anyone in, uh, in the audience is going to the World Cup, or trying to, at least at this point, would be cool to hear from you. I mean, you mentioned Formula One one time and we had so many people say, oh, they're diehard Formula One fans and they're going to Montreal and they want to go to the you know Grand Prix and stuff like that. So it'd be cool to see, are they I, soccer fans and are they planning on going to the World Cup? Yeah, that would actually be interesting to see how many soccer fans there actually are. And then if there's a big enough contingent, you'd be like, you know what? I'm surprised how many people are going. Like, I would like to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. 2026 World Cup is Canada, US, Mexico. We should do like a CAOMS World Cup 
game event or something. I don't know. We'll oh, something out. That would be that would be amazing for sure. Bring out bringing all the soccer fans together. It'd be a lot of fun. Okay, Oscar. Next up, we have our guest interview. This is one that we were pretty excited about. Also, kind of nervous about though. I would say nervous. Yeah, nervous is nervous. a good word. Yeah. So we have Dr. Stanley Liu, who is a big name in oral surgery. He's the head of the Sleep Fellowship at Stanford, and you know they're the group that put out the Stanford Protocol on OSA. He's the OSA uh, guy. He's the OSA guy. Tons of publications, great articles. Two of them we're going to go into with him during the interview, so we won't go into that. But the reason why we were nervous is this is the first time. And it took us two years to get here where yep. we felt comfortable enough to reach out to someone that we actually don't know. Neither we've, of us knew. Yeah, we've never met them. We have no personal experience to them. We've never worked with them. Whereas every single previous guest we've had on the show, we've known there was in some, some connection. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There was some, some connection. So that being said, I actually kind of like the idea because, and it's something we mentioned before, I think, that we want to do more of because if, when you go outside your comfort zone, you meet new people, but also you learn more a lot of the times because because you don't know them because you haven't worked with them they bring up things that you hadn't thought about and, and kind of like meeting the whole even the point of this podcast is to bring the community together and make it bigger by us meeting new people also it makes our community bigger yeah yeah that's actually a good point and then they spread it to other people and, they, and then they start listening so yeah really really excited for this guest interview we're going to talk to stan about osa and you're going to see he's very impressive in his, his research and, and his knowledge and uh, without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Stanley Liu. All right, here we have Dr. Stanley Liu. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Wendell and Oscar. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, Thank so you. For, uh, for those that don't know you, can you start off by introducing yourself and Kind of give us your background, maybe your educational background, where you're living, your work situation right now. Just kind of give us some more information for people that don't know you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So currently, I'm an associate professor in the ENT department and also plastics by courtesy at Stanford. I direct a sleep surgery fellowship. And so we, we are a very unique practice in that we focus on taking care of patients with obstructive sleep apnea uh, on the surgical end but in a, in a very comprehensive uh, fashion. Myself by training, an oral surgeon by training, six-year program out of UCSF in San Francisco, did a fellowship at Stanford. Interesting story there, but it wasn't the first sort of original plan, but ended up anyway, finishing the fellowship here. Uh, wasn't the plan to get hired on uh, as, as faculty here, but that's what happened. Currently, my, my practice is entirely focused on the, on the surgical care of patients with uh, sleep uh, breathing issues. How did you end up in the ENT department though? Ah, why are you in the oral surgery department? Yeah, because we don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> that's the so, easy answer. That's, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's well, this, the, answer. the right answer. We, we, we don't have one. Um, you know, Stanford, I guess in the US, you know, I mean, again, Stanford doesn't have a dental school. And so anything sort of maxillofacial, craniofacial has fallen in, in either the, the plastic surgery division or really the ENT department. And so, so that's kind of partly how, how that part worked out. And Stanley, you kind of already touched on it, but how did you actually end up in Stanford? It says you, it wasn't your maybe initial plan, but how did you end up there? I think for a lot of us, mentorship is key. What happened was, so, so I was doing dental school and, and quite frankly, my introduction to oral surgery was you know, inspiration in the, in the realm of head and neck surgery. My first mentor was Brian Schmidt. We, you know, I still remember as a dental student, we made this uh, mouse model of cancer pain. 
And for that, uh, I was able to then do a Howard Hughes Medical Institute year away from UCSF and really delve into the basic sciences. I was in the NCI. Then came back to, uh, to UCSF. And, and, you know, again, I think that there are residents on the podcast or who listen to this. And I think, you know, what happened was on the research realm, I really loved cancer. But on the yeah. clinical realm, ah, that practice was hard for me. You know, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we all love the cancer. <laughs> yeah. we, we all love the anatomy. But taking care of that population for some reason was so depressing for me that I did not feel like, you know, that was where, because I wanted to be, you know, my practice to be a real perfect merge between research and clinical practice. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Again, that's, you know, that that's asking maybe for too much. But anyway, that's what I wanted to do. So I was a little bit lost and, and um, picked up this book from a Bill DeMent. Now, Bill DeMent really uh, is the founding father of sleep medicine as a clinical practice uh, on the planet, literally. Mm -hmm. So this is the guy who discovered rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, the best sleep that we all want, but none of us get it anymore because you know when you're my age, I don't get enough of it. You're, you're, most of your REM sleep happens when you're in fourth grade. So uh, for everybody listening on this podcast, you're, you're, you're out. You're too right? late. It's yeah. done. Yeah. You're too late. But you know, REM sleep is good. You know, it's funny because when you look at the REM sleep under EEG, it looks like you're awake. It's kind of wild. Huh? Yeah. But you're in the deepest sleep. Anyways, we'll come. We'll talk about sleep if you guys want to talk about that. But anyways, uh, I picked up his book, and I, I still remember this page. You talked about these two people who were dentists. Who then one of them did oral surgery and whatnot, and then developed the Stanford Sleep Surgery Protocol, and they were awesome. And they're my mentors, and Nelson Powell and, and Bob Riley. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, they're they're dentists. Uh, and they did sleep apnea. Well, shoot, I went to Stanford as an undergrad, and I took this course, Sleep and Dreams, that that built and meant started. Actually, I teach it now, which is even weirder. <laughs> yeah, so so I reached out to to, to my mentors, and and uh, hi, something I highly encourage everybody you know uh, to do. If you're That's interested awesome. in an area, yeah, you you have a mentor, just email them. They might not reply. I mean, when yeah. I when I emailed <laughs> them, uh, Nelson Powell did, but Bob Riley didn't, because later on I would figure out that Bob Riley likes to be on the golf course. Uh, <laughs> but the story so he, gets better he though. Had the, excuse, though he had an excuse though no 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 but the story gets better though <laughs> but anyways uh, I, I went down to palo alto where they had a private practice they were just you know operating in stanford hospitals so they were in private practice and i thought well shoot i want to join uh um, nelson powell I, I was inspired by how he took care of patients and i thought this was going to be great anyway eventually uh, what i'll say is ultimately you know as fate would have it i never operated with nelson powell once even though he inspired oh, wow. me to wow. the field because of his health issues. But then his partner, who never responded to me, became my <laughs> my, my true surgical mentor. So all that I'm is saying hilarious. is yeah, life is, is is funny like that. You can't map anything out. Yeah. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And all of this only makes sense backwards because what then happened was Nelson, because what I had hoped was, well, I'll join them in their practice, apprentice, and you know, kind of carry on that tradition. It would be like super cool. But Nelson was like, nah, you gotta go to Stanford. You gotta do the university track. I'm like, Oh, so I was the first oral surgeon ever to do that Stanford fellowship because they all mm -hmm. obviously is an ENT department. They only yeah. take ENTs. And I yeah. think without my mentors kind of kick you know, for and, you. and push, oh yeah, it, it would never have happened. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I, I totally agree. You never know where life's going to take, take you. I always told the story at McGill and Oscar knows the story, but even for me in dental school, I went to dental school just west of Toronto. And I applied to all the residency programs in Canada. I remember in Canada, it's not like the U.S. We only have, we have six programs, but one is Francophone only. You have to be French speaking, yeah. which I'm not. 
Uh, so really, I had five programs to apply to. So you apply to all five, and you hope to get interviews just to say, you know, I'm interviewing everywhere. Because whenever you interview, they say, oh, where else are you, you interviewing? So you kind of want to say, oh, I'm interviewing everywhere. It makes you look good. So I applied to McGill as a formality. <laughs> I went to the interview as a formality. I almost canceled the interview because of a <laughs> conflict with another interview that I had. And I got there for the interview, literally doing no research, just kind of showing up saying, okay, we'll see what this place is about. And Nicholas McCool, who was the fellow at Michigan when I was an extern there, you know, with Sean Edwards and the other Canadians, we were talking offline about how Michigan has so many Canadians. I went there for an externship and he was the fellow and he was super nice to me. And I was like, oh, this guy's an awesome guy. And this is the fellowship, Michigan. They no longer accepted Canadians, so I didn't apply. But I go to interview at McGill and I walk into the interview room and Nicholas McCool is there. And he's the incoming program director or had just taken over as program director. So I said, wait, what? I this guy <laughs> This guy was awesome. Yeah. And kind of what you said about mentorship, I was like, I could learn a lot from him. I really enjoyed my time with him. And he treated me amazing considering I was just a second year dental student. He was the fellow. So then I was like, oh, maybe I should start looking into this program a little bit more. Talk to the residents, you go on the tour. And by the end of the, by the, end of the day, I remember calling my parents being like, man. This is where I want to go. McGill is in play. <laughs> like, this is really, really good program. And I really like the program director. So you never know where life's going to take you. Fully agree with that. And then so, you know, go, go, just kind of pursue what, you you know, truly interests you. And But at the same time, I, I feel like, you know, professionally when you get to this level especially by the time you get to fellowship level by the way i'm always looking for fellows so please reach out. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know i i um i think it kind of is a two-way street you know and just kind of pursue what you're interested in and and believe it or not you know the the guy who's doing it day in and day out uh is looking for the same kind of passion and interest and yeah. it will work mm -hmm. out even if it you know, yeah, it's hard to recruit people to sunny California and, you know, Stanford <laughs> Sounds terrible, and, eh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just hard to be here, but, you know, uh, you know, but if you like the sunshine and, 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 and the good like weather, nice weather, perfect yeah. weather, yeah. Yeah. you know, be like minus 15 here. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've driven a convertible since med school, you know, because the, oh. weather, the weather's oh, wow. so bad. <laughs> we don't want to talk about cars on this podcast. We have a history of talking about cars yeah. and we we don't want to get into the car debate here because we, we have a bad history about cars on this podcast. Yeah. Me and Wendell are about to sign up for this fellowship and go to, to, go to Stanford. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, it, you know, I actually in college I got depressed because, um, you know, I, I do some summer school like dorks do. And you, you walk out and it's like blue skies and God, I mean, another sunny day. Please kill me. Have, give me some rain. Give me snow. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, I'm signing up tomorrow. Perfect. <laughs> I have a question for you, Stan. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I always joke with Oscar because Oscar did a four-year program. I did a six-year program. Canada's like 50-50, kind of going towards the six-year program eventually. But now that I have a DDS, MD, you know, I always put like DDS first on my signature or my business card and then MD afterwards. Some people have noticed, even though they did oral surgery, they put the MD first then the DDS or DMD. They're really trying to prioritize. Some people introduce themselves in a certain way. So first of all, do you put the DDS first? And do you, do you think of yourself as a dentist first? And if someone were to ask you, like you're at a dinner party and they say, oh, Stan, what do you do? Or like, what are you? How, What's your what answer? Do you say, what do you say you are? What's your answer at this point? Yeah, oh, man. You know, I don't go to <laughs> enough dinner parties where people ask me that kind of question. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think in the U.S., I mean, the custom is that you, you put... Um, because folks are very used to the MD, PhD, MD, DDS. But whether, you know, some people do, do the PhD first and then the MD, you know. And, and, and I think that it's just customary that you you kind of put the one where, I guess, maybe your practice, you know, you're, you're practicing under most of the time. 
So I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen it. I've seen it go both ways. But at least in, you know, at Stanford, when you when 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 the Epic the EMR pulls up and and you know that's sort of the first licensure that it's that MDDDS. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then let's say someone asks you, well, what, what do you do, Sam? Like, what are you? How do you? What do you, do you say? I'm an oral surgeon. Do you say I'm a max official surgeon? I bet you say I'm a head and neck surgeon. I'm a sleep surgeon. What, what do you What do you say? You know, I mentioned sleep surgeon, I, and then you know, and they'll be like, "Huh? Yeah, you know, yeah." But like that works for you. Know. You can definitely say that. But I, I think uh, a lot of times it's an opportunity to to discuss what sleep surgery is, and and I yeah. think that's important. Go, what the hell is sleep surgery? Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. They're like, "You're what?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, because because it's funny here because sleep surgery to an ENT is a lot of soft tissue surgery. It's a lot of uterine mm-hmm. and a lot of tongue base. Yeah, but I, I'm gonna say you know sleep what's you know sleep surgery over the years and I you know again eight years seven years as a faculty member now. It, it's it's interesting you know what what are we really in the business of and then we always have to ask the why right because that's that's really what is interesting. And I say this all the time. I say this on my research website. You know, restoring uh, sleep, airway health uh, is is a gateway to to wellness, and it really is. And that's what we're in the business of. Mm-hmm. And and then when you think about it, the bar is pretty low, right? So we're in the business of helping people breathe when they're sleeping. <laughs> so wow, that's pretty bad, right? Because you know, I mean, like you mean. People don't breathe well when they're sleeping. No, they don't. And that's what we're in the business of. And, and so I, I guess that would lead us to kind of a question I have. So on our podcast, we like yeah. to do a segment that's called the Resident Reminder. We take a oh. topic, we explain it to residents from kind of junior all the way to chief level. And for our topic for this episode is obstructive sleep apnea or OSA. So how would you go about explaining OSA to a resident? It is one of the biggest public health unmet needs we have today. It affects every human being. And even the people who don't have sleep apnea want to breathe better when they sleep. Trust me on this one. It's almost like cosmetic surgery or hmm. cosmetics. Do you, do you, does anybody want to look more ugly? Probably <laughs> not. Does anybody want to sleep worse? Ugh, I don't know. It'd be kind of weird to find that yeah. person. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it turns out, though, what is unique about sleep surgery is to the oral and maxillofacial surgeon, the bones that you've been moving around your entire freaking lives moves the same muscles of the upper airway as it does for the face. Mm-hmm. And that is a unique space to occupy because what you are now saying is, oh, you know, by breathing and beauty, when we are planning anything that we do for you, not only do we want you to look better, we actually want you to breathe better. and not only breathe during when, when you're awake, uh, but breathe well when you're asleep. Yeah. And I'm saying that that is absolutely, you know, to the residents, you cannot fathom the unmet need in that area by way of research, by way of clinical practice, or by way of just like building your own practice and, and, mm-hmm. and doing well for yourself. I mean, I, the, the population is so big. And you will never find a human being who will say, no, nah, no, nah, I want to I wanna breathe really badly when I sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? You know, I, I really want to get hypertension. No, I really want to, you know, uh, I have good genes, but I really want to get arrhythmia. That's and, my and goal. I really, <laughs> really want to have depression, anxiety, 
I really want to have low sperm count. <laughs> I really, I, I, I want all of that. Yeah, yeah. So no, no one, you, you don't find that person. Makes you sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what would you say is the definition of OSA, and how is OSA classified? So I'll give you the board question. Yeah, board, not, residents not love board. that. Board, yeah, residents, residents want to know the board answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're right now we're at the junior resident level that they can only handle the board answer. <laughs> yeah. They can't handle nuance. <laughs> no, I know, I know. So, so do remember, you know, sleep apnea, right? We're we're talking about really cessation of airflow during sleep. So you gotta be sleeping first, right? So like half asleep don't count. You gotta be <laughs> sleeping, and there is a reduction in airflow. Now, you can have obstructive. And that's what we tend to think about. That's the space we occupy as, as surgeons and dentists and whatnot, or any practitioner for that example. But then you also have central sleep apnea. So now you're, you, you have a situation where the brain doesn't even tell you to breathe during sleep. That's not so good. It is, that, that part is primarily treated by CPAP, although there is one neurostimulation device uh, for it that none of us is very familiar with yet. But anyway, there's, there's central. And then Ultimately, there's complex, which is basically a mix of both. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but bottom line is make it simple. You're not breathing when you're sleeping. That's weird. Because we will breathe when you're awake. Because I mean, yeah. if we, we stop breathing now, we die. Right. I mean, yeah. so it's a very weird situation. Something is causing a cessation of airflow during sleep. So, the way you want us to think about sleep apnea is it's a reduction or a limitation of airflow that ultimately either disrupts your sleep or worse, disrupts the sort of the sympathetic and parasympathetic controls in your body system. And again, that's what's causing a lot of these horrible kind of, uh, you know, uh, whether it's end stage organ issues or what I had mentioned, you know, just with, you know, mental health issues, yeah. way mm -hmm. huge, like mm -hmm. unbelievably huge, uh, mm -hmm. or actually, frankly, just loss of productivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, yes, there's the definition of, you know, sleep apnea is AHI above five in adults, above one in kids, which makes no sense at all. Cause like you turn 18 in the US. I don't know. Or what's drinking age in Canada? 18 or 19. 19. Oh. 18, well, 18 or 19. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Depends yeah. on the province. Yeah. All right. So in the US, it's 21, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah. uh, you know, but the, the, you know, that, that, that might make sense for drinking age. But with sleep apnea, it doesn't make sense, right? So today, before you're 18, <laughs> AHI above one, you have sleep apnea. You you turn 18 and one day old. Oh, you're cured. You're cured. <laughs> cured. Thank you. That's um, probably the highest success rate in curing for sleep apnea is turning 18. You tell me, you know, that's the best patient we want, right? Now, so. You're like, when's yeah. your birthday again? Okay, let, let's wait a couple of months. <laughs> No, now, now, yeah. and now, now again, that that one you guys know is more of a sort of healthcare system issue. Yeah. But also, just beyond that, it, it's, it's it's a very silly issue. And so that uh, gets to a point where I publish on this on gender. We're going to publish this on ethnicity very soon. But boy, if you're defining sleep apnea the same way for a 23 year old man or woman. Comparing to a forty-eight-year-old obese man or postmenopausal woman, you got problems. Yeah, yeah. but but mm -hmm. that's where we're at. You touched on it briefly, I think, uh, just for the residents. So, as you said, AHI over five in adults is sleep apnea, mild five to fifteen. 
mm-hmm. moderate, 15 to 30, right. severe over 30. As you said, if you're at 29 and you go to 30, all of a sudden everything changes. So it's really it's supposed to be a scale and a, kind of more of a spectrum. But yes. that's like the board answer five. That that is, that is the board 30. answer and it's easy to remember, you know, for kids, it's, you know, one, uh, you know, less than one, you know, and then one to one to five, five to 10, 10 to 15 and above. But again, you know, yep. it's you, you guys have to remember that it is it really is on the on the continuum. And then, by the way, mm-hmm. there remember the AHI, right? The apnea hypopnea index. Now, the apnea is, is easier to define, right? Because you, you're talking about a reduction of airflow yeah. beyond 90 percent. So pretty much full on. Mm -hmm. obstructive but here's the problem which is the definition for hypopnea because that definition has changed four times in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. so now it's a point at a point where it's almost imaginary no i'm kidding but i mean it's almost (laughs) like you have a reduction of airflow that reflects on a change in say your eeg right so 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 it shows disturbance uh, there. The problem, of course, is most of us are doing home studies of which you have no EEG. The point is, hypopnea is let's just you know make it very broad, which is partial reduction in airflow. Okay, yeah. but the problem is here's an interesting point: Would you rather be the AHI of thirty, where all thirty is apnea? I'm I'm obviously exaggerating here, or all thirty is hypopnea? Which one do you want? Because that's not the same. That's not the same person. Yeah, the yeah. AHI may be thirty, but yeah. but but one might be prim- primarily apneas, and one might be primarily hypopneas. That's true. And that's going to mm-hmm. change how you manage the patient. Yeah, yeah, good one. Good and point. then when we talk about OSA, so like when you're speaking about a patient, everyone's different. What is your typical workup for a patient with OSA? So when patients come to us, uh, mm-hmm. by the time they come to a sleep surgery clinic, you know they they have had a sleep study. They mm-hmm. they've tried CPAP, even if it's two days and they hate it. But anyway, <laughs> we. We have we have that, you know. People underestimate a few key things about the polysomnography, and I, I think and again, none of us have to be you know sleep medicine experts and reading EEGs you know like all day long. But one of the things is we jump quickly to the number. Oh, mm-hmm. AHI of thirty. But I already mm-hmm. alluded to one issue. Yeah, is mostly apneas or hypopneas. Mm-hmm. What about position? What if that guy was like AHI of 60 lying on their back, but AHI of nothing? Again, I'm exaggerating, but AHI of nothing when they're on their side. So yeah, now tape you, a you, tennis ball. Tape the tennis ball to their back. Right, right. You know, <laughs> trick was. Exactly. get their wife to beat them up and push them over. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But then they're going to tell you, oh, my left shoulder hurts, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I'll, I'll take your tonsils out. Let's see what hurts more. Right. So, 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 um, I was going to say, you know, you do a lot of sleep surgery or workup <laughs> when you've heard the, like my left shoulder hurts, like Oscar and I, we've never heard this complaint before from a patient. Are you kidding? They mention that all the time. I'm like, sleep on your side. You're okay. No, no, I can't. I, my left shoulder hurts. That's wow. a totally new world of yeah. chief complaints. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for the residents, uh, again. Anything you look at in life and in medicine, it's all always about baseline and variation. So you don't want to jump to numbers. In fact, on any sleep study, you want to jump to the histogram. Because what you want to look at is, okay, what's the baseline? And where's the variation? Does the vari- meaning, okay, disturbance in breathing, is it happening during REM sleep? 
and only in REM sleep, or you don't want to treat that one, that might be a REM sleep based uh, sleep behavior disorder, sleep disorder. You don't want to touch that. Is it only happening when they lie on their left side? Well, shoot, do a nasal surgery. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, is their baseline oxygen saturation low, like 92%? Well, that ain't just upper airway. So you guys say, you guys don't say ain't, but that is not just the upper airway, right? That could be something else going on. And if you're going to tackle that person based on the AHI, you're going to fall short. So what I'm saying is you don't even need to be an expert, but look at the histogram of their sleep and look at when that sleep disturbance is happening. Does it make sense? If it's happening now, if it's a young patient with no other issues and it's only happening during REM sleep, you know, I'm going to go out and live. I want to tell you that that's a tongue-based problem because when you're in REM sleep, all your muscles relax, a tongue's going to fall back. But whose tongue falls back? Young patients, their tongue moves, the genial glossus muscles intact. That's the guy with the small jaw, right? So again, you can pick up a lot from that first get-go. So I analyze sleep studies, I think more than mostly medicine physicians, because mostly medicine physicians look for two things. Is it obstructive or central? Doesn't mm -hmm. matter, it's CPAP anyway, right? <laughs> Secondly, does this have Shane Stokes breathing? Like, does this, or, or, or is the baseline low? You need oxygen therapy. You know, I mean, hey, do you guys have tall mountains in, in Canada? Like, no, like high, high altitude, you guys got tall mountains uh, up there? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. just, just out west, just yeah. the Rockies. Not in Ontario. Right. So, so if I were to take one of your people who live on like, you know, flat ground, I take you up, you know, uh, high up in the mountains and your mm -hmm. oxygen saturation drops. Okay. When you are baseline, it's now 92. And when you sleep, it dips down to like 89. That is a highly unstable realm, right? And if yeah. you remember college oxygen, whatever. Disassociation curve. Yeah. I don't remember that anymore. Anyway, it's very <laughs> rough, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you could cure sleep apnea by bringing you back down to earth, you know, to flat yeah. ground, right? Mm -hmm. so, so this is complicated. So, so you need to look at all of that. But so, so, so you don't just look and say, oh, age of 35. All right. <laughs> and the guy's got <laughs> class two malocclusion. Oh, this is an MMA patient. <laughs> well, it may be, it, it may be, you could do it, but, but then you gotta be prepared if the patient has other issues. So anyway, my workup is I dissect the sleep study for a, a treatment goal. Now, why do I say mm -hmm. that? I personally do not believe CPAP is treatment. And again, Canada luckily plays a different version of football, but you guys are Canadian football. It's the same. You, know, you have a touchdown, you have a goal. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our goal is to be on the better end of, 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 of the field position. Okay. We, we play the field. There's no cure for sleep apnea, by the way, and there's no need to be cured. I mean, there's no such thing. I mean, you know, it's not like football, you score a touchdown, you're done. But what you mm -hmm. want to be is you want to be 10 yards away from touchdown. So you get anything would work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to be 80 yards away from touchdown. Then, then, then you got to do some surgery or do something. Okay. So anyway, it's on the spectrum. Okay. So, so on that end, you, you dissect the sleep study. Now you get to the next thing. Okay. Does the patient want to wear a CPAP? They're happy with it. It's just not working out well. Okay. You ask them, what kind of mask are you wearing? Right. I'm wearing a full face mask. Well, why? Well, obviously, if the thing is not going through the nose, they're going to change you to full face mask. But well, why is it not going through your nose? You have nasal mm -hmm. obstruction. So fix it. So mm -hmm. if you look at the, the, the updated sleep surgery algorithm at Stanford, so you remember the old one, right? The old one is everybody comes in, gets nasal, palate, genial glosses, advancement. Yeah. 60% works for the 40% of the phase two. You go to phase MMA. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, we, that, by the way, we just skip we skip phase one. We pretend that doesn't exist. We just go. <laughs> what is phase? Yeah, it's like. <laughs> hey, hey, but you guys should not. You guys should not. Okay, so so I'm going to give phase one a a better. You know, a lot of people attack it, but here's the deal. When was phase one written? 1987. So when I was born. Oh man, you're young. <laughs> Right. He's even he's even younger. <laughs> All right, but here's the thing, though. Even to this day, why don't you name me a center, a single surgeon who will do phase one and phase two? Very rare. Yeah, mm -hmm. very rare. So that means that we can't even fulfill what you guys don't like about 1987, right? But there's value in that because remember, in 1987, to incorporate both soft tissue and skeletal tissue, why did that happen? That's actually an interesting story. My mentor is Nelson Powell, Bob Riley. What happened was, for, for whatever reason, they ended up both at Stanford for ENT. And for whatever reason, that ENT clinic was downstairs from the sleep medicine clinic. And for whatever reason, Christian Gimme No, who coined obstructive sleep apnea for pediatrics in the U.S. and also obstructive uh, sleep apnea in general for the world, saw some French studies doing some skeletal surgery, you know, whatever. I mean, the French surgeon is probably smoking in the, in the, in the OR. But yeah, this guy looks like, you know, move his jaw, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> he went to Bob Riley and Nelson Powell says, can you guys do this? And quite frankly, they didn't know how to do it. And they had to go learn from Bill Ware, who, who was the UCSF oral surgery chair at the time. There's a lot of cool history. I mean, wow. a lot of this, you have to know the context to know why mm -hmm. it came up like yeah. that. But anyways... So they ended up doing, they started with lower jaw surgery because, you know, Lafour was back in the day, a little scary, right? And then they eventually did double jaw and wire people shut and all that kind of thing. Anyways, that's how it came about. You know, that, that, that phase one came about from people upstairs and downstairs from each other and talking about a bunch of lateral steps. That's how it happened. But anyway, so phase one, okay. But right now, Coming back to you know the revised protocol, which is really in at least seven eight uh, different textbooks and in multiple languages, we keep writing it, and you should you should really critique it. Anyway, I wrote all of them, but what is different about the new protocol is is it's it, you know it's real life, right? Patients first of all, patients decide what they want to do. So you get this question where, well, if MMA is effective, why not do it? Well, the patient says, I don't want my face yeah. cut. What are you, you going to do? Yeah. Right? You can tell them to go home. No. You're going to say, well, we can do other things. It may not work as well, but we'll try that. I'll give you a perfect example. I've had two, three patients recently this year where they wanted to start with hypoglossal nerve stim because they feel like it's pretty non-invasive and so it's cool. Dude, one of the guys is like frank, like mid-face hypoplasia. Like, like <laughs> the guy needed a four, like a four like 30 years ago. <laughs> right? But yeah, I respect the guy. So I did yeah. I did U triple P for him and I did hypoglossal nerve stim. And no matter what the, the sleep medicine guys were doing, could never get this guy to normal. And I did his MMA. It's okay. I mean, again, so it, this thing is a, if you look at the new Stanford sleep surgery algorithm, it's on the continuum and it goes in a circle because it has to. Because first of all, you, it's not like cancer surgery. You don't decide what the patient wants. The patient decides what they want. Okay. The second thing is we, you know, there uh, for patients even, you know, and the CPAP is a good thing. I mean, obviously a lot of people don't want to go through invasive surgery, but for CPAP to work well, nasal CPAP works well, right? Full face doesn't because then you have to strap yourself with duct tape and, you know, so the thing doesn't lift off. 
and you also have to have no nasal obstructions for it to work as you said absolutely and remember nasal breathing during sleep actually dilates upper airway muscles and activates mm -hmm. glosses. mouth breathing doesn't oh wow okay okay so so then what do you do well simple you start them on nasal sprays didn't work you can do turbinate reduction in your office you could do septoplasty i can open up the nose and do spreader grafts or you do maxillary expansion mm -hmm. right because we publish a whole series on this. I mean, for the adults with narrow upper jaw, for the adults with skeletal maxillary hypoplasia in a transverse dimension, you mm -hmm. do nasal surgery for that patient and they don't do as well. But that's mm -hmm. kind of duh, right? I mean, so what is the most rest restricted part of the, the nasal passage? Ah, this is a question for the residents. But, you know, it's basically the septum, the, 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 the inferior turbinate, mm -hmm. uh, the upper lats. Mm -hmm. And then half the, half the textbooks stop there. But mm -hmm. to be a valve, you got to finish it. So it's nasal floor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nasal so floor, base. nasal floor is not discussed because they don't, most ENTs don't do anything about it. Yeah. Although that's changing very rapidly. But maxillary expansion, right, is, is going to address that very, very well. And so that, that's what you're looking at. And, and also when you look at sleep breathing, that's also different than, than, than awake breathing. Because when I when I take a picture for the patient, you know, so they come in, so we scope, you know, oh, back to the workup, and take a few pictures in the mouth, scope mm -hmm. them through the nose, they see what we were, were uh, scanning. Patient's pretty smart. When the upper jaw is this narrow and the tongue's this big, and I'm like, does you do you need a tongue fits in there? They say no. Yeah, they're right. It doesn't fit in there. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? The tongue has three options during sleep: fits inside the mouth, falls into the airway, or mouth open sticks out of the mouth. It really only has three. Yeah. I mean, again, as surgeons, we try to make the most complex simple, and I don't think there's anything bad about that because sleep is something that we all do, and it, it's not that complicated. So, okay, if it doesn't fit in your mouth, it either falls in your airway or it sticks out of your mouth, and mouth breathing is not great. We established that. So, okay, nasal surgery alone may not be enough, and we publish all of this. I mean, you know, a whole series on that, you know, internal nasal valve angle, CFD, you know, we even publish on patient self uh, perception. So a ton of that. But the idea is, well, if the tongue doesn't fit inside your mouth during sleep, then even when you can nasally breathe, you know, in wakefulness, Still. you can't do it when you're asleep because it's just going to get stuck in the back of the tongue. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And and then you have to mouth breathe again, right? So so you always have a, a sleep study report. You have, obviously, you said you talk to the patients, see what their their hopes are, their goals are, chief complaint. We always talk about how important that is. You do photos. the scope. You do scope, you do photos and show the patient. Yep. Does everyone get a dice or drug-induced sleep endoscopy? No, usually. So so who gets the sleep endoscopy? So that's the kind of thing. So what is sleep endoscopy? It was really, really briefly, let's go talk about it. In, in, in all honesty, we ought to call it sedation endoscopy. And then that's okay, because it's still drug-induced sleep endoscopy or dice, which, by the way, yeah, yeah. nobody wants to die during the <laughs> procedure. I find that perturbed. But anyways, but dice has value because it gives us a sense of how the airway actually collapses when someone's relaxed. So, so it does have value. And actually, if you run under dexmatomidine and Presidex, it's actually very close to stage two mm -hmm. sleep. And that, uh. that's very good. But that's very expensive. So in clinic, you're probably going to run them on a propofol. And that's mm -hmm. okay. I, from an academic standpoint, for my MMA patients, I did do dice before and after because I want to see what the hell that's doing for the airway. And mm -hmm. whoa, it does cool things for the airway. 
then mm-hmm. what I would do during dice is I would kind of do a, a chin lift, okay? Because mm-hmm. MMA is not a jaw thrust. That's retarded. There's no such thing. I mean, we don't... Jaw thrust is barely like four millimeters. It's not even what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you do a real MMA, you know, and let's You're say if patients uh, tolerate the counterclockwise rotation, that chin yeah. point is going to come forward a lot. So, you know, but... Some patients you do that, whoa, airway balloons is beautiful. Some oh. patients you do that and the airway is not beautiful and you gotta think about what else is going on. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a very important publication, still in my opinion, to this day are the two that we published where MMA resolves two of the most challenging uh, upper airway collapse patterns, which is the concentric collapse at the soft palate, they call the velum, or mm-hmm. uh, closure at the lateral pharyngeal wall, which is the oral pharynx. Uh, oral pharynx. These two are tough. So oral pharyngeal wall closure, uh, lateral pharyngeal wall closure, actually, because that means the whole length of the the, the sides of the airway closes. And, yeah. and, and that is the, the one that mostly correlates with loss of oxygenation. So that's bad. Concentric is also bad. For example, that's a rule out. Uh, that's an exclusion criteria for hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Mm. So, so which is nice because then if patients can't fail both and the MMA is a great solution. And hmm. what I'm hoping to do in the in the upcoming years is to do a multi-center big MMA trial where I'm hoping that my oral surgery colleagues and everybody else will, you know, collaborate and, and do sleep endoscopy before and after because you will resolve lateral pharyngeal wall collapse. And it is the worst and the most difficult one. You're not going to solve that with you know, P, And I can say that not out of bias. I was part of the, the sleep endoscopy trial, mm-hmm. pre and post-op, a very, very big trial with the ENT colleagues of ours. And they showed that, you know, soft tissue surgery does not address lateral pharyngeal wall collapse. Only two things does, CPAP and MMA. And so oh, perfect. speaking of pre and post-ops along those lines, pre and post-op, what do you think about pre and post-op questionnaires like the Epworth sleepiness scale or the stop bang questionnaire? Hugely important. So it's it's a lot like rhinology, you know, where they've also learned a lot, you know, breathing, sleeping, breathing, whatever. V- patient reported outcome measures, prompts are hugely important because if they don't think they're breathing, they're probably not. <laughs> because the other thing is, is hard. You know, we do rhinomanometry. You could do a lot, you know, PSG does one night. Although granted nowadays, you know, everybody's got wearables and, and <laughs> we could talk about that if you want to, but that has value in sort of a night to night tracking. But ultimately, ultimately, the, the patient self-reported questionnaires are, are really important. Man. So we'd like to do Epworth. We do Epworth. We used to do a NOS uh, questionnaire. Uh, and then now we do one that's called the Schnoss, which I like a lot because it's got both a cosmetic component and a functional component. Yeah. So we just got oh, a paper wow. accepted in the um, uh, Facial Plastics Journal where you know we do a number of things to make sure that our patients are doing well with nasal breathing after MMA surgery. And we ask them, well, what do you think about how your nose looks and also what you think about how the function is? Really that important. Is good. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really important. That's nice, actually, having both the cosmetic and yeah. the functional. Because we, we always stress. It's funny, because when it comes to conventional orthodontic surgery, we stress all the time. This is a functional surgery, and the side effect is soft tissue and profile changes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, someone you're moving their jaw forward, you're, you're going to notice your lower third, your chin is all coming forward. But that's not the goal of the surgery. We obviously always factor that into our planning. But you don't want it to make this a cosmetic surgery. It's a functional surgery. 
And when you think about sleep surgery, that's like the ultimate functional surgery, mm-hmm. but it's kind of nice that you can tie in a cosmetic look. Yep. As you said, a lot of these surgeries will have soft tissue, soft tissue changes and oh, profile man. changes. Yeah, when, and you nailed it, you know? So then people are like, oh, you know, sleep surgery, you yank people one centimeter, which by the way, that's a board question, one centimeter, but then what the hell does that mean? Where are you measuring this? <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> so you're like high angle class. Well, let me pose a question to you guys, all right? What do you do with a high angle class three? Conventional teaching is a little bit of advancement, a little bit of setback, Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Split the difference. Well, that's retarded. Yeah. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times, a high angle class three, you do a counterclockwise rotation on the maxilla, the mandible, you can actually clock it up. The, the, the pogonian can still come forward. The teeth might move back a little bit, but the pogonian comes forward where it pulls all the upper area muscles. And so, again, you know, I, I, I can't, now on the podcast, I can't show these images, but I mean, I can show you like Frank class three side, we used to treat, you know, splitting the difference. And then class threes, I would treat now with rotations. And so wow. for the residents too, rotations, and, and when you know this, I mean, rotations are critical. Yeah. Okay? yeah. But the other thing is, you know what I learned, uh, which I, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing the, this podcast today and not five years ago, the patient, you know, all the principles we know about how to make the patient look good, okay? still applies for airway surgery. And why should it not? Let's think about it, right? We've been moving jaws for a long time. We know what move, how to move jaws and make people look good. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to make, make people look bad because chances are when you make people look bad, the airway is not better for it. <laughs> when you yank people to, to gorilla or crocodile standards, it is not going to make the airway better. It shouldn't because that's not the point. You want to just make sure that you restore the jaw position where it should be. Now you're saying, well, mm-hmm. what is it if it's inadequate? Well, that's where you do nasal surgery, tonsil, mm-hmm. palate, hypoglossal, right? There is mm-hmm. no reason to make someone look bad on the way to airway wellness. So what, what I, I like is what I've realized over, over you know, a couple hundred cases now is, hmm, as long as they look good, the airway is probably in the right place. It really is. <laughs> no, 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 really. Yeah, it really yeah. is. So so there is no conflict. There's no such thing as the MMA makes you look ugly. No, no why? Well, if it makes you look ugly, the airway's Something's ugly wrong. too. The airway's yeah. ugly too. Yeah, you yeah. probably overcompensated or something like that. Exactly. Or as you said, you're, you're relying too much on, hey, just jack everything forward a centimeter. Exactly. Counterclockwise as much as you can. Why? It'll work. Why? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. No. no. No, it's a good point. So... Um, Oscar mentioned the resident reminder, and I think we had a good, you know, discussion there on OSA and the classification and your workup. Quick question about the workup as well. I just realized, do you get PAN, CEPH on everyone, CBCT on everyone? Do you do the whole 3D analysis of the zero. airway? On- zero. <laughs> zero. Zero. Wow. Zero. Okay. Zero. What does the imaging tell you? Static. Yeah, but. Look. Uh, to, uh, I'll be honest with you. It, what, you know what imaging tells us? Are there wisdom teeth or not? Well, yeah. that, that's very important. <laughs> so, so, so you'll take the pen. I, I would like them out. I, I don't take them out at the same time as when I do the MMAs. You know, a lot of my patients are older, and and yeah. you, know, you, you do a big advancement. There's a big hole. Yeah, I don't understand. You know, but yeah. So, uh, and and then I appreciate the paper that you share with me. I, I like the paper a lot. I like how what they did. I like the the rigor of which they did. But that's why sleep is so cool. Because look. Everything changes when the dude is sleeping. So that static imaging, you know, again, and so 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 at Stanford, I, I did this thing, you know, it's called the biodesign program, where basically you know teaches physicians how they can you know, 
you know, when we think about medical devices, when we think about innovation, when we think about unmet needs, we tend to think within our how we're trained. But that's really oftentimes not the best solution. You know, you 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 want to really post a problem to the best it can and the population it serves, and then you try to look for the solution. You know, mm-hmm. Comium CT was never designed to diagnose sleep apnea. It's just like, yeah, you know, like that's not the right tool. And as you said, that three day airway analysis is just a it's just a static point in time. You don't know if they were inhaling, exhaling, supine, or they're probably standing up to be honest. Or head position, or head position, or, is it compensated or not? I mm-hmm. I have a really cool slide, and, and and you know, but you guys can all imagine in your heads. I have a patient where I cover his neck and I cover just his neck, and I just show his face, and he looks like a class one patient. Okay. Except and then and then I, I exposed the the sort of the cover and his neck is the, like so super forward uh, extended because his head position has compensated for the fact that he's really in reality bimax or protrusive. So so if you're gonna look at anything, for example, like let's look at Max or Kant, which is, I think is very interesting. This happened during COVID actually. It's kind of interesting. So a patient comes in, they wear a mask, I can't even see their face. And I usually have the fellows like scope, you know, so I go in, I look at the scope, I'm like, ooh, ooh. that right side of the nose is really blocked, left side is really not blocked. I bet you that right side of the face is really underdeveloped. I bet you this guy's a maxillary can't. And then the guy takes his mask and he's got a maxillary can't. Look, if, if this is two other key things about sleep apnea, you know, I usually ask, you know, residents, hey, you know, who gets sleep apnea? Oh, I'm in the age guys. Oh, really? Oh, so, but this is not an infection, right? You didn't just get it yesterday. Right, you've had it for a long time, so it affects your facial growth. Why the hell do we even treat this? It affects every aspect of your life. So you know, I I always tell the fellows, your nasal examination in my clinic does not begin with you sticking a camera in the guy's nose. Your your nasal examination begins by looking at the guy's face. If the guy has a maxillary cant and maxilla develops before the mandible, let's remember that. Then the dude was never breathing correctly from day one. Because a side where they're not breathing well, something's going to happen. If it's young enough, you have total maxillary hypoplasia. By the way, this is the only thing I haven't published, but I, I think I've been taking pictures nonstop, and you guys all should, and we, we should collaborate on this. However, uh, let's say if you, you guys remember the monkey studies, right? Uh, from mm-hmm. you said, well, way back, you plug a monkey, you, the nostrils. Latex plugs bird. in the nostrils. Yeah, what do they get? They get, they, they get long face, anoid faces, right? Yeah. But that's when they're a little bit older. So, so the other option is, you know, plug their nose. What is that? So, so how does that translate to real life? So say you, you, you move to a different country, you get allergies, or you start playing on AstroTurf and you get allergies. Suddenly you're in one side of your nose, which already has a predisposition with nasal, septal deviation and turbinate hypertrophy. Now that side of the nose gets more blocked. Then your face is going to grow downwards because you're going to kind of try to open up the nasal aperture. You, you, you just have a cant. Now, it may be subtle because your orthodontist is going to intrude and extrude and Orthodontists do what they do. But then you look at their eyes, you look at their face, and you take a picture, and you know that side of the face is smaller or longer. Something's up with that side. And so that's why I tell the fellows we're treating sleep breathing. That means they've been breathing like that during sleep since birth or whenever the hell it is. And and so their facial asymmetries got it. Now let's talk about the TM joints. So that was going to happen. So now the joints are like, well, the and then I think about your hemifacial micro. Oh, actually, that's not a good example. But okay, think about the maxillary cant, right? So you got a cant now. And let's say the mandible's normal, but now it's going to match this cant. 
right? And now something's so so now the orthodon the orthodontist might be able to correct mild maxillary can, but now your joints are going to suffer for it. What if they and now what if let's make it worse? What if the facial vertical growth happens earlier so the mandible gets caught? So the mandible doesn't grow forward; it grows down. Okay, and then you don't have enough space, so you pluck out a few teeth while you're at it. Right then, then now, now you've just created this pathway to things, and and then, and then what's the solution? Oh, a counterclockwise double jaw advancement. All right, but <laughs> you know, so one thing about sleep apnea surgery, I want to stress all again to the residents is, unlike cancer surgery and a lot of the things we do, it's not reconstructive in nature. It can never be. We we are not that good. We can't control the brain. You know, when you think about sleep apnea, it's not just anatomy. You're talking about sleep arousal, loop gain. You're talking about you know muscle muscle adaptation. It's way more complex than that. However, you know what we are doing is never going to be reconstructive in nature. This is not cancer surgery. It has to be restorative. It has to restore function. And in older patients, they just don't automatically come back. You know, nasal breathing, tongue posture. So you have to re-educate. So that's the other thing too, is what we do is about restoring missed milestones during growth and development. What we do is not reconstruction. That, that's because there's nothing diseased here. They, they just happen to be in the wrong spot and you got to get them to the right spot and let the brain take over because the neurologic aspect of this is way more complex than what surgeons can achieve. So we wanted to jump into a couple of articles yep. that you had written. You've written a lot of articles. We know from your research, as you said, from your website, things like that. We, we chose the two most popular ones, the ones that are the most well-known, which is, you know, maximum mandibular advancement, the contemporary approach at Stanford, and then also um, the surgical algorithm for obstructive sleep apnea and update, because we want to talk about, obviously, Stanford protocol and then the update. For the sake of time, we'll kind of jump through this kind of briefly and point by point. Because we really just wanted to use it as a springboard, and we link to the articles in the show notes. Always, so people, you know, we highly recommend they go and read the articles. But one thing we wanted to talk about using the the articles to 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 as discussion points is first off, what evidence is there to support the genioglossus advancement procedure, and how exactly do you go about doing it? Because that's something that a lot of people are not as familiar with. I, I will say, for example, for myself, I did it zero times in residency, and then all the time during my fellowship. So now I feel comfortable doing it, but it wasn't something in my wheelhouse before. Um, Oscar, I'm not sure about at UFT before if you were doing it at all during residency. We did it like I wouldn't say we did it a ton, like but like it sounds like you did in, in fellowship, but we had done it a couple of times. Yeah, where where I was decently comfortable with it, but not something that's done all the time. No. So what do you think, Stan? What is the evidence for that? It, when would you do that? Is it a good idea? Because it's very simple to do it when you're doing either a genioplasty or doing mandible surgery. You know, as you said, we're bony carpenters; we can do this all the time. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we we actually have a systematic review that we publish on genioglossus advancement and 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 whatnot, but I barely read it. Not not very important, <laughs> guys. When you treat the airway, any isolated single site surgery is really not going to be very effective, right? That's why UCLP never is that successful because you treat the palate, okay, well, tongue, nose. You know, so there's a lot, and genial gloss events the same. But let, let let me come back to the concepts. You know, what is a successful genial glosses advancement achieving? And I like this analogy in clinic, and I think the residents can use this very effectively. And it's a pain point of mine. So I'm five eight. So look, 
you know, even if I train my hardest, I cannot dunk a basketball. You just, you know, now, now some people might height can, but that's, you know, that's pretty rare. But, you know, again, it's, it's, everything's on the spectrum. But what if I were 6'5? What if I extended myself and I were 6'5? Then with training, I can dunk a basketball, right? Okay, so that's what Genial Gloss's advancement is doing. What it's doing is, is forcing what is a short genial glosses muscle to what? To lengthen. And initially when it lengthens, it doesn't like it. It's like, oh man, now, you know, let's say it was five muscle subunits. Now, and doing 50 newtons of force, now it's forcing a lot. So what's going to happen? So it's going to subdivide and you're going to have not hypertrophy, but you're going to have hyperplasia of these muscle subunits. All right? And you're going to dunk a basketball. Why is that important? Because then the tongue moves when you're sleeping. Why is that really not entirely the case? Because what if your maxilla is short and the tongue moves, but it has no place to go? It still falls back, so it's retarded, so it doesn't work. So no one single site surgery works. Secondly, how do I do it these days? I, I like to call what I do the eight-minute, and that's kind of slow, but you know we have trainees, you know, the eight minute uh, genial gloss advancement. So what is, we, we look, now that is one place where the cone beam CT and the CT scans help us. You just design it, right? What you'll discover is a lot of patients are not fit for genial glosses advancement. I'm sure there are all these papers, like you measure the panel and take a ruler and, and the magnification is like, you know, 1.5 to whatever. Dude. Yeah, we're, we're beyond the yeah. the static. I mean, yeah. well, not everyone in Canada. No, I the genial glosses but... could be very high. And, and in the problem yeah. with that is you don't want to ever have to plate something into the alveolus because then the thing is going to fracture and it's not good. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times they don't, they're, they're not candidates for genial glosses advancement. So I would say for my patients doing the MMA, half of them, are okay, but you know, some of those really narrow mandibles where the genial gloss attachment is really high, forget it, man. So then you're like, then why the hell are you doing it? No, because, well, my argument is it pulls the genial, um, genial hyoid muscle, but the other thing is for facial balance, right? Because you know how guys are advancing and they've got those slope mandible and that doesn't look good. But the, the point here is that is where our, uh, you know, virtual surgical planning and patient specific implants do help us. Because, for example, I think for me, at least, the chin is difficult. You know, you know, you know little rotation, little, little thing, and, you know, and, and the chin, like every little movement you do, if you, if you screw it up, people see it. <laughs> it's like really rough. So what the way I do it is I plan it. If the genioclossus is low enough for me to capture it, I sure will. But I, I just have a guide. So I just pop in a guide, I cut according to the guide, and I pull it out, and I have a custom plate, and the, the chin goes to where the plate is. And, and, you know, a lot of times our patients have short face. So I want to rotate the, the, the chin, give them a more aesthetic outcome. It's, dude, those things are hard to do. I don't know about you guys, but it's very hard to do compared to, I get, you know, so, but we've, with a custom plate, it's very easy and you're just executing it. And then, so that's, uh, that's what we do. But I think that the key point here is very early on, even with the original Stanford uh, protocol, multi-level surgery always works better than a single level but we kind of know that but you know if you're going to incorporate this into your mma or whatnot you know i think this is where the chin i think is where virtual surgical planning is very very valuable very valuable but you can also look at the systematic review that we did on not only on genioplasty uh, genioglossus success but also on how to measure genial glosses position. But again, this is beyond our time. We're beyond those times. You take a comb beam, you know where you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We don't need the panoramic magnification numbers anymore. No, no, no. <laughs>
And so you're saying that like one specific treatment isn't really going to work if you're just treating one specific thing like you were talking about. So along those lines, what algorithm or protocol do you use to determine what surgery you perform on these OSA patients? Yeah. So first question, you want to wear a CPAP and oral appliance? You do? Okay. You're having challenges with it? Okay. Then the challenge can be nasal obstruction. Great. So let's go the nasal obstruction algorithm. Simple. You do Flonase and, and Astelin, so you got a steroid and antihistamine spray in there, okay? You're kind of, you know, wimpy about doing nasal valve surgery, okay? Go home and wear some kind of nasal valve support, be it the mute device, the nasal aid, the whatever the hell. You know, you could do in-office uh, inferior turbulent reduction. You know, we could do your septoplasty. Septoplasty, remember that we published also that 25% of the patients have posterior septal deviation. That's different because that's not cartilaginous. That's vomer, that's the bone. So you got to address it. So I think I do a very meticulous uh, septoplasty. What about internal nasal valve? Maybe you could do a spreader graft. So we'll do that if that's the case. But again, all, all, what if you also have a very narrow, narrow upper palate where, you know, the width of the tongue is five to one ratio with uh, with upper max revolve. We publish that. We, we know that you're not going to do well even with nasal septal surgery. So then you're going to do maxillary expansion, by the way, what I call dome, which is really a concept more than the technique. So the concept is you need to do distraction osteogenesis for maxillary expansion. It has to happen in the nasal floor. And that's that's basic. It has to happen in the internal nasal valve. So so that's the whole nasal algorithm you can walk them through. Once they're done, they can go back to CPAP. They can go back to oral appliance. I stress, actually, that maxillary width is really key to the success of all of your other surgeries. Let's think, let's think about tonsil surgery. When your jaw upper jaw is really narrow, no matter what you do for your tonsil surgery and you triple P, you're confined by the width of your upper jaw. So chances are you're going to have better results if it's wide. Same thing with tongue base. I don't care if you use TORS, which we do, coblation, laser, doesn't matter what you do. If the tongue is not going to fit inside the mouth, it's just going to fall back. And then you're going to go back to the same square one. Inspire is the same. Okay. And then obviously double jaw surgery. So then I guess in the question of, well, then why don't you just do a two-piece or three-piece Lafort? My quick answer for that is very simple. When you do a two-piece, three-piece Lafort, you move the dental alveolar segments to where they belong. But the most it's important the piece, most important piece, which is uh, where it attached to the upper area muscle, doesn't come with you. Mm -hmm. So you can have two people look the same and skeletally look the same with maxillary expansion followed by MMA versus a double jaw you know, multi-piece Lafort kind of situation. But in one case, the airway will come with you and in another case, the airway won't. Now mm -hmm. think about that. Think about that. Think about how you do your two-piece and three-piece. And the most important part of the upper airway doesn't come with you. And that is right, a it's big the problem. Because it's connected to the palatal island that you leave behind. And then if you look at systematic reviews of MMA, looking at people around the world doing MMA correctly and incorrectly, what determines MMA success, which is, by the way, in the paper that you guys had me read, they look at man, man, mandible, but really the, the, the key is in the maxilla because it is the maxillary advancement that determines MMA success. But that's obvious because you're talking about levator, tensor, the palogloss, the palatopharyngeal uh, muscles, and, and all of those is what gets pulled when you pull the maxilla. I'll give you guys a kind of a historical kind of, you know, fun fact, but Back in the old days, when, when, when anesthesia wasn't great and they were like scared of doing double jaw surgery, Powell and Riley used to do this staged 
they would do the maxilla first and get the guy off the table and then come back to the mandible like like months later whatever it is um, <laughs> yeah you know because you know back then they were using gas or whatever right but they're not <laughs> running on a tiva but what's interesting is after you know obviously i have to restore the bite but after removing the maxilla and they do a sleep study almost everybody's done most wow. people are. yeah now let me ask let me ask you guys another question who has worse sleep apnea class threes or class twos it's a trick question i guess the answer is going to be you would think it'd be the class twos but mm -hmm. it's actually I'm the gonna, class threes yeah so let me ask you this with the class twos what can they do they can posture their lower jaw you can oh, yeah, wear they can yes. forward, but a yeah. class three can't protrude their maxilla obviously mm. If it's a class three and it's actually maxillary hypoplasia, what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Right? So the maxilla dictates the success because mandible surgery is kind of pointless because mandible surgery creates almost nothing. Remember, the tongue moves by itself. The tongue moves by, has a, a life of its own by the genioglossus muscle. Yeah. And people posture their, 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 their lower jaw. That's why your oral appliance works very well with class two patients. What, yeah. what are you going to do with a class three patient? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, I, I won't, I won't lie. That's a very counterintuitive, or yeah. a very, that's no, not, no, but let's think, let, let, let's it's think about it. It's a counterintuitive point, but as soon as you explain it, it, it's like, And if you didn't wow. pose it as a trick question, which then we knew the answer was going to be the opposite of what we thought, yeah. I would have got we it wrong. Yeah. 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 Well, but let's think about it. If you're class two, can't you like stick your low draw forward? Yeah. 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 When you're a class three, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, nothing. You know what you do, though? You posture your neck forward. So when you mm -hmm. look at the guys with really bad neck posture, they have maxillary hypoplasia. Because only in sticking their whole head forward can they barely breathe. Uh, Think yeah. about it. Yeah so, yeah, so don't forget about the maxilla in these patients. Yeah. No, no, no. The maxilla is everything. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the takeaway from this podcast. Well, the maxilla so. also hosts a nose, which you can fix. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't don't take that that one away. And remember, when the maxilla pulls forward, what happens? Every upper airway dilator muscle that's static gets pulled. Mm -hmm. The genial glossus has a life of its own, it's and dynamic, you can yeah. it's dynamic. So it, it just follows. So yeah. again, you know, when I see a class three patient, I feel bad for him. In the class three patient, you know, you move the maxilla uh, without, uh, unless you move the maxilla forward, they have no choice. It's very hard. Very Definitely. Hard. So some other things that I wanted to touch on from the article, the first article you wrote, I really like that when you described your surgery, obviously we're big on surgery. I did a fellowship in orthodontic surgery. We did a lot of MMA patients. And I like the fact that the way you describe surgery and your approach to it and what you're doing, which I'm going to touch on, it was very similar to how I train and how I would do it today. Meaning I've had experience with other extremely well-known surgeons where conceptually- You're saying you're talking to the much lesser known. I know, but you know, truth. <laughs> <laughs> no shade your way, but I also don't want to throw the other people's names on the bus. So no names in general, but I, I have seen other surgeons where didactically or, or communication-wise or lecture-wise conferences everything will make sense. But when they actually show their surgery or describe their protocol, it makes absolutely no sense. It's like, what? no one would ever do it this way. So things that you mentioned that I really like, one is focus on occlusal plane, counterclockwise rotation is your friend. You have to look at function and the aesthetic outcome. 
a lot of people think, oh, you have these massive pagonion changes, massive mandibular advancements. They're going to look like a baboon or their midface is going to protrude. No, counterclockwise, the piriform rim barely moves in sizers. Sometimes they go backwards. It's it's very, very impressive what you can do. One thing that I wanted to note that I really liked also is, you know, no post-operative splint, just light guiding elastics. One thing I didn't like as much was post-operatively, ICU. Do you send all your patients to the ICU? Do they have to go to the ICU? Because this is a big bone of contention amongst a lot of OSA surgeons where you have some people in the camp where everyone goes to the ICU, and then you have other people in the camp where they definitely don't go to the ICU or to the floor. In my fellowship, a lot of them went home the same day. And the argument is, if anything, their airway is better post-op than it was pre-op. So wh- wh- what's your rationale on that? And wh- what's your kind La- of protocol for post-op? love your question. So when I started, everybody went to the ICU first night. Yes, that's how my mentors are trained. But yeah. let's put some historical context. They're in private practice. They don't want to take your patient first night. So they're going to put them in private They're going to put them in the ICU. In the last four to five years, I've put nobody in the ICU postdoc. Huh. Now, okay. caveat, you got to get them off the table quickly, right? Yeah. You yeah. do a six-hour MMA, then I don't know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's some physiologic things that, again, as a surgeon, I don't understand. You get them off three and a half hours, then they can, they, they are okay. Secondly, I think that the ICU is not better for the post-op MMA patient, to be dead honest with you, because ICU is about like, you know, sedation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like stuff we don't want to happen to an <laughs> MMA patient. So a sleep apnea patient. So no, I, I think if you, but that depends. I'll give you a really a count, good counterexample. One of the best robotic tongue-based surgery units in the world is in Italy, in, in a town called Forley. And um, it's done by four sleep surgeons there. And um, they trick everybody. You're like, whoa. Oh. But then the context is they have no residence and they live an hour and a half away. The, all the attendants live an hour and a half away from the patient. So again, <laughs> I, I would like to think that this is all about patient safety. So it's let's a say- geographic trait. Yeah, yeah. So let's say at Stanford, I have a, I have a unit that's like semi-decent in airway, okay? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know I, I work with trainees and so, you know, I got to do my, my side in like eight minutes and then they spend the next half hour playing <laughs> on their side, right? And that's okay. That's why we train patients. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm so always looking for fellows. Okay. So coming back to that. So, <laughs> so but on, run under Tiva, run well. Uh, we get the patient off the table. And uh, you want to extubate them 100%. Because mm-hmm. they, as, as you said, well, no, I mean, there's no reason to. I mean, there's no, no reason to. There's to, no benefit to, there. to, yeah. yeah, there's no benefit. Uh, I, I wouldn't send a 65-year-old home, though. I mean, you're, you're talking about guys who are younger. And, uh, and and a lot of it's just anxiety. You got to remember that your sleep apnea patient comes in taking, you know, Zoloft and, uh, you know, some other SNRIs or SSRIs. And it doesn't keep them well overnight. This is not bad. Yeah. It's always bad. TLC. It's never a surgery with them. It's always TLC. Correct. Definitely. Correct. Yeah. I liked in the mandible how you mentioned uh, bicortical fixation and adding a long plate just for reinforcement. This is for these large advancements. I think that makes a lot we of need sense. It. We need it also, by the way, of did you catch a part where we, we position and condyle differently? Let, let's talk about that because, I mean, this is a very highly educated audience. So I think this is a worthwhile discussion. I, I never would have figured this out, but Bob Riley figured this out. You know, the problem is 
So, so, so my thumb and, and say my hand and you do an advancement, right? So, so that poor little TM joint still supporting this jaw that's longer. When you position the condylar segment, so that's a little bit inferior to that, what you're doing is you're using part of the body of the mandible as the new ramus. Okay. So that's cool. Because what's interesting is when I do these surgeries for younger patients, they, they give me joint issues, I, I, I admit, and I get that. But then the older patients, who their joints are so shot from this, they actually do very, very well post-MMA. So don't fear the big advancement. The only thing you have to fear is let's fixate the well. So what does that take? We do two bicortical screws and we do a big mandibular plate. We do both because sometimes the screws will fail you. Sometimes the plates will fail you. I don't know. But the, the idea is my patients eat very quickly. So the other thing is we don't keep them a splint because your OSA patients are so anxious, man. You keep yeah. them in a splint <laughs> and uh, they can't handle it. So we don't. And if the screws, the, the bicorticals fail you, the, the plate will hold you. The plate, little you got to back up. You need a backup. Yeah, yeah. parachute. I, I like that. I, I think that's. I think that's a very reasonable approach. And I think I would do the same thing. Do you do you do uh, bicortical and plates through a trocar, trans transvagal trocar, or which was something else we do as well? Because we, you know, obviously ninety degrees is perfectly, you know, is great. And 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 so what we do is we do the the first bicortical uh, trocar and we put it in, uh, and then we do a second one. And then now that the jaw is relatively stable, we'll spend our time bending the plate. Now, I will say that my approach means there is a higher incidence of needing to remove the big honking plate, especially in the younger patient, because, you know, over time you get a lot of that little fistula thing, you know, they don't like the plate or they spit out one screw because they're only like seven millimeters or six, depending on what company you use. And um, so, okay, a year later, we'll go in and remove the, pl remove the plate that bothers them. But... You know, you know, our patients are not very compliant. I've had patients who go eat a hamburger two weeks out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's because you guys have In-N-Out Burger there, don't yeah. you? Yeah, or or they go camping and they get they they run into the car runs into a, a an, an elk. You know, like what? <laughs> That's because you have too many sunny days up there. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. The weather's coming to backfire, and you yeah. know, That's awesome. So then, the last thing you know, just to touch on the the other article, the update article. As you mentioned, and, and you, you already kind of touched on this, to be honest, in our discussion, but people used to think, oh, phase one and phase two. Now you're saying it's more of a circle in the sense that there's all these are all the treatments available. It's kind of like a menu. These are all the treatments available. And usually it's not just going to be one thing that fixes everything. And also the patient's going to determine um, what they allow you to do, what, what they allow yes. you to do. Yes. One thing that you made a, a great point offline to Oscar and I, and it's definitely worth repeating on the show, is that. We mentioned how we don't really have exposure to dice here in Canadian residency programs. And you said, well, why? Why don't we? Why can't you, you asked us, do, are you allowed to sedate your own patients? And we said, yeah, of course. And then you said, do you have any scopes in your clinic? And we said, yeah. Yep. So you said, so, so what's so the what are we missing here? Like, <laughs> what's going on here? So tell us about that and, and how maybe residency programs in particular can easily incorporate and maybe should be incorporating. And it. how it benefits the residency program, too. Right. So the idea of a sleep endoscopy is you want to keep the guy or girl, you know, sedate enough where they're snoring. But if you were to shake them, they will wake up. So, so, so titrating that is, is kind of an art. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I will tell you, it is easier to use uh, an agent like dex dexmetomidine or Presidex, uh, which is an alpha-2 agonist. But obviously, you know, th that's very expensive, so you're going to use propofol. But, you know, if you're skillful, but you got to play with that. But that's the whole point. Yeah. Recently, I've had a couple of oral surgery kids uh, run through, and I'm like, wait a minute. You know, if you were to sedate them and you see that they have concentric collapse of the soft velum, uh, of the soft palate, the velum, what would you do? You would float the nasal pharyngeal airway down, right? I actually think that sleep endoscopy is not only valuable in looking at airway collapse for sleep-related issues, but actually it would give you a lot of information on how you sedate your day-to-day thermolar implant kit, uh, patients. Because I think where you struggle is, okay, what if your patient actually had concentric, so total closure of the soft palate? Then you're all taught to do like pull the tongue out and you know wake the patient up, and then you're struggling the whole time. You're like, why is this you know thermolar taking so long? But maybe the dude is suffering from concentric collapse of the velum. If let's say you put okay, so you start running an infusion, you're running the propofol and 120 mics per kick per minute, whatever it is you want to run that, and then you 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 scope them and you were like, oh, the guy has concentric collapse of the velum. Well, flow the damn nasal tube down. And suddenly, your championship level, you're going to finish your procedure. So remember that sleep endoscopy is all about how does the airway muscle close during sedation or sleep. And that is hugely valuable. So even if you're just doing your oral surgery procedures, I think it has value. Where I think practice building begins, and I really want, I desperately want someone, like if one person from this podcast wants to do sleep apnea surgery, I'd, I, you I'd, did your be, job. I'd, I'd be happy, right? Hey, so your local dentist do oral appliance. Oh, shoot, I titrate this guy 10 millimeters. His lower jaw is flying out of his head and it's not working. Well, dude, you know, it might be, you know, it's okay. Tell the patient to come in to your clinic do a sleep endoscopy and real and tell the tell tell your sleep dentist referral base that oh uh, the nose is blocked and the soft palate is closing. Well, why don't you just do a nasal surgery and open the palate, and then the patient's now a championship level oral appliance wear. So I think they these are two areas of unmet needs that can be fulfilled. That is a sleep endoscopy can actually improve your sedation procedures. Think about it. You all, you know, everybody thinks about the tongue. I mean, we've had instructors teach us, like, you know, throw a silk stitch through the tongue and pull mm -hmm. the tongue out when the guy can't breathe. But, dude, it could be the soft palate. <laughs> Why don't you just throw the nasal tube down and just open yeah. it up and you just finish the case? You yeah. know what I mean? And keep that damn nasal tube in while the guy's in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's, it's better if you know that ahead of time. And you don't even know ahead of time. You just have to know it. Like, like, okay, okay. So you say the patient, the guy's like unruly. You do the scope. Oh, yeah, it's got concentric collapse of the velum. Okay, so who knows? The guy's big tonsils. The guy's fat. The guy's got long neck. The guy's got max or hypoplasia. Again, I just gave you all the reasons why someone would have concentric collapse of the velum. Okay, load the nasal, nasal uh, the airway down. Finish your procedure and get, get the guy out of there. So that's, uh, that's one thing. The second thing is, okay, your local sleep dentist. You're worried about referrals. By the way, just like cancer, 
remember this, right? By the time someone like from medicine refers to you on the oral cancer, the tumor is like growing out of the face, right? <laughs> but but when a dentist sends you a case, it might be like dysplasia or a very early yeah. stage. Yeah. Okay. Just like sleep apnea is the same thing. So 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 so, so your sleep dentist sends you, ah oh, man, this guy wears oral plank doesn't work. Ah, no problem. You do a sleep endoscopy, and you say, ah. Oh, yeah, you know, the guy can't do the guy's mouth breathing. Okay, do a little septoplasty, go back to oral appliance. Uh -huh, you know, it's got concentric palate. All right, you got two options. You do palate surgery, you do maxillary advancement. It's up to you, whatever the patient wants. But you, you just build a practice. You know, my practice, for example, if a sleep medicine practice sends you a patient, run away. I mean, if they don't even want the patient, you better run away. That's how I feel when Oscar sends me a wisdom tooth patient. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. wait, 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 something, something's not happening. Yeah, wasn't doing this. Yeah, I'm just trying to help Mr. you. I'm just trying to help Mr. you build your practice, right? You, Mr. Just, you just buy it. <laughs> Mr. Dental or himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when a, when a dentist sends you a sleep patient, man, you better own that one. Yeah, yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair That's enough. Good. It's yeah. the same so thing, guys. It's not different. Not different. As I said, these are these are two great articles. We mentioned them on purpose. We'll, we'll link to them on purpose because I think Definitely it's read them. absolutely mandatory reading for everyone. And yeah. and the update, they're actually it's everything you're looking for. It has the protocol, it has how to triage, how to work up, and how to kind of figure out where you need to go. So and it's well laid we highly, out too. Yeah. Yeah. So so hi, highly, highly recommend that. Next, we're gonna move on to our journal club segment. So basically, Stan, each episode we take one journal from JMS or sometimes IJMS and um we do a critical appraisal, which is incredibly important to be able to, to read research, understand what it means, see the strengths, see the weaknesses, see how it can affect your clinical practice. You're involved in a ton of research. So the article we selected for this month's episode is from IJMS called, Are We Able to Predict Airway Dimensional Changes in an Isolated Mandibular Setback? And we chose this for two reasons. One, it's probably one of the most common questions that's ever asked when it comes to mandibular setback cases. Oh, but what about the airway? Yeah. What about the airway? What about the airway? And number two, we knew that we were having you on the show. Which and is the best uh, person to ask. The best person to ask, you know, you're an airway expert. So Austria, let's do our pre-screening here. We have, this is by Han, Antonini, Borba, and Meloro. Yep. So they're from the University of Illinois, Chicago. And basically, they also collaborated with the Faculty of Dentistry in Brazil. Brazil. And we've talked before about how- There's a ton of Brazil, research. A ton, ton of research, research in Brazil. Brazil yeah. just like churns out papers. Yeah. This is a collaboration between the US and Brazil. So we like that. Has some names we're familiar some big with. big names, so, we like that. So Stan, this would pass our, we always do a pre-screening on the show. This would pass our pre-screening because it's oral surgeons, it's mm -hmm. collaboration. We recognize some of the names. If you, if you were to pick up this article, would it pass your initial pre-screening when you're looking at it? You know, I, I like this paper a lot. They did a good study. They looked at it and they say, you know, honestly, you cannot rely on the CBCT to assess airway changes with, with, with the work we do. And I, I think they're right. It's too hard because, again, if we're going to talk about airway collapse, that this only happens when someone's asleep. They acknowledge the limitations, which is they did the post-op CT very quickly after surgery because over time the muscles relax. By the way, the most important thing they missed in this article is it's not about the mandibular setback. Remember, the patient can always posture. 
it's the maxillary issue, right? That that is a real issue. So, but I would say this though, I think of all the kind of papers that they've done on this kind of thing, they've done a very, very good job because they they recognize that look, they're looking at isolated mandibular setback, the maximum of which is a couple of millimeters, which is not much at all. And they cannot discern a difference CBCT-wise in the upper airway. So I think with this paper, they don't, the conclusions at least, they don't propose more than they can possibly, you know, they, they can conclude. And I think it's very important because I, I think they mentioned a few things, but the key, but there are two important takeaways from this, though, in my opinion. One is, if it's for aesthetics, you have to push the guy back, do it. It's okay. But why don't you just do a tonsil with it? You know, again, like, we have a way to mitigate that. You know what? Chances are, if a big, fat, honking tonsil that you remove is more than the maximum of six millimeters that take away from this. And so, it's okay. Secondly, they also acknowledge in their paper that they take it immediately post-op, and that's accurate because over time, muscles readapt. So if you push this back, but and, and also I'll just be totally honest with you, in all the years I've been doing this, which is not a lot, so just take it for what it's worth, a couple hundred cases, but you know, a high angle class three to me is never a class three in the classical sense. Because I always feel like a high angle class three, if you rotate the upper jaw, the lower jaw clocks up, teeth come back. That's fine. That's what you wanted to do. But the pogonia moves forward, and that's where the airway is attached to. So I have a lot of examples where patients achieve very satisfactory aesthetic results with that movement. So personally, also their patients are younger. You know, my patients are older, so advancements always looks nicer anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, think about this. But I also have a very young patients. Think about this one. I would just say for the residents that I think a lot of the softwares we use, whether it's Dolphin or whatever it is, is very sagittal, but it's all about rotation. It really is all about rotation. And if you think about it that way, very few people need setback. I, I, I can't think of too many, to be totally honest with you. I think a lot of quote-unquote mandibular prognosticism is what like the ENTs are calling big tongue. Dude, there's very few of that. <laughs> but that's but, th but that's it's a small job. So, <laughs> so so for example, their goal was the purpose of the study was to determine a relationship, as you said, between the amount of setback and you airway change, which is our biggest find it. You will never find it. Which is our biggest it. fear. But the funny thing is, after our discussion today, you kind of realize you'll never. If you set the mandible back and they're and they can just posture forward. Yeah, it's it's they're a maximum that can be that. a problem. Two things and, will and, happen in the younger patient: the mandible posture forward and the genial glossus muscle will be overactive. So when you look at mm -hmm. a young patient with sleep apnea and you look at under sleep endoscopy, what you're going to end up finding is all it is is when they're sedating, now the tongue falls back because there's no room for the tongue, but their tongue's overactive, so the tongue muscles actually start. So in the early stage of sleep apnea, genial glossus muscles actually overdevelop because they're trying to compensate for it, but then they're going to tire out. Or postmenopause are really going to tire out, and then and so 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 the issue is really let's stop using the the imaging for this. You know, I I actually think that look for all of us who do jaw surgery, make the patient look as good as you possibly can. Because guess what? Guess what? That's probably good for the airway. And you know what? Where you fall short, do a tonsil. 
do a palate surgery. Maybe the guy has big ton- lingual tonsils because the guy's been lingual, uh, mouth breathing forever. Remove that. And then if need be, let's say, you know, I'll give a good example. I was supposed to do it this week, but uh, we actually have a nursing strike at Stanford, so it's kind of crazy, but whatever. This guy, he's 66. I don't want to do a double jaw surgery on the guy. Come on, right? So I tried to do a P and nasal surgery, and I, I was hoping he would do hypoglossal route. I didn't put a dent in his AHI. So I say, okay, listen, bro. We're going to do a small MMA because you're 66. I mean, I just don't want to do a big one. And then I'll do a hypoglossal nerve stint, you know, combination. Because once, well, by that age, what happens is probably the genial glossus muscle doesn't want to move anymore. But you still want to give him a little bit of tension and space and then you throw in the hypoglossal. So, you know, what I'm saying is, I, I think this is where sleep endoscopy is important. I think this is where sleep study is important. I think this is where the wearables are important, where it's wearable or nearable. Actually, the mattresses are actually better than any watch you wear. Yeah, because the mattress knows your sleep position. That's kind of nice. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, in the next 10 years, this thing is going to explode. And what's going to happen is, and I'm going to say this on this podcast because I, I think I know your audience a little bit. It doesn't matter. If someone does nasal surgery, soft palate, or hypoglossal, there is going to be a diamond dozen of people who do it. But the people who fail all of that are the people because their skeletal position is in the wrong place. And the only way to fix it is to put it back in the right place. And that falls right in the hands of an oral maxillofacial surgeon with some training. I mean, if you're going to do like this split the difference BS, I mean, you know, (laughs) that's classic. Yeah, but 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 if you are anything about rotations and you know we don't deviate from the principles. I mean, you know, you want to have a good incisal show. You want to have a good smile arc. You know, you yeah, want to combine throw... the function with the aesthetics. Yeah, that's what show. you've been preaching today. Aesthetics matters. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? Being in the ENT department long enough and having done enough rhinoplasties long enough, this is what they teach as well. If you look at the top of the line rhinoplasty surgeons, what do they teach? Right, they t- they say. I mean, and they usually come from the ENT side, not the plastic surgery side. But they teach. Oh, you know, want to build your nose, but want to make sure you breathe well. Right. So, 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 what's functional usually is aesthetic and sound. Yeah. Yeah. What's this? yeah. Yeah. Right. And you know, in our same. world, it's the same. What is aesthetic is that. So, in the old days, I used to think, oh shoot, am I going to be like the sleep surgeon and people think I make people ugly? I don't. I don't do that. You know, it turns out that's not true. In the end, luckily, luck would have it. When we make the patient look good, we're doing the right job. But it has to generally look good because don't tell me the split, the difference thing looks good. Not not always. It's about rotations and thinking about, you know, and you guys know this very, very well. But man, if you make the patient look good, the airway is in a good position where what? Where, for example, if they are 45 years old and you make the bone look good, but in all the years of negative pressure breathing, the uvula is long and the saw palate is long, we will do a saw palate surgery to finish it up. Why not? I mean, why not? You know, I often think if history was rewritten and oral surgeons were the ones who dealt with sleep apnea, then phase one and phase two would have been phase one would be MMA and phase two would be yeah phase one would have been MMA yeah it would have yeah perfect. but that'd be a problem that'd be a problem though because phase two will win it because phase two will get them to cure yeah, you're right yeah you're <laughs> think right. about phase it. one would do the bulk of the work and then yeah. phase two would cure them right 
Yeah. So anyway, what I'm saying is, in the end, you need a combination of both. But isn't that we? That's what happens, right? You you have a 55 year old patient who needs double jaw surgery, sure, but they probably also need what uh, a little facelift. Yeah. Why yeah. not finish just, finishing just touches? Just give yeah. it to them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's your pla- That's your honorary plastic surgery standing whatever position professor <laughs> professorial position you have. Yeah. yeah. Question question for you, Stan. Yeah. Before we let you go. Okay. You talked about your fellowship. And how you're always looking for fellows. This is this is a big deal because I will say over time, more and more people are doing fellowships. We don't have any Canadians that have come down and done the Stanford Fellowship, any OMFS here. I'm kind of jealous because I feel like some someone's gonna listen to this podcast yeah. and probably be the first There's Canadian be a niche. fellow to go do it. And it's gonna be a niche and they're gonna be great. And it's honestly better for our profession and better for our country as well. So can you tell us more about the fellowship? So how yeah. do people apply? How many people do you take a year? How long is the fellowship? What's the surgical experience like? Like, tell us more about the fellowship so all the residents listening can learn more about it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the chance to give a, a shout out for the fellowship. I I did the fellowship and then, you know, in the subsequent years, you know, we've only had ENT fellows and then now we can take two a year. My pipe dream is always to take one oral surgeon and one ENT. Uh, mm-hmm. For very selfish reason, they can teach each other, so I don't have to deal with it. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right? So, so this year is the first year I took an oral surgery fellow, someone I've known for a long time and I know would do well here. And, you know, I told him, I said, listen, you know, your job is to go well beyond me, which is not hard because my bar is pretty low. So I want him to be the rhinoplasty dude, right? So I want the guy to be known as MMA plus rhinoplasty because you kind of need that because the nose is jacked with bad breathing too. That's what I want to have is one ENT and one oral surgeon because the ENT would be like, I've never seen a bone in my life. <laughs> and the oral surgeon's like, you know, you know, the soft tissue stuff. But I think it's really valuable. So the fellowship is busy. We try to we we're busy. We 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 have a lot of good cases and you will be trained in the entire algorithm. So if you look at the algorithm, you see nasal surgery, we're gonna teach you everything. Saw palate, everything. Tongue base, actually, we, we finally got the single port uh, robot. So, you know, Da Vinci now has a single port, not the, the big belly, you know, the forearm BS. And that's very impractical. But now we have the single port. So we'll do that. I've done some AR, uh, um, AI stuff on that. So it's going to be kind of cool. It's going to map out the veins and arteries and you just kind of wow. take out the chunk. It's stupid, I mean, to be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't want any fellow to leave the fellowship be like, well, I was never trained in robotics. No, I can't handle that. Maxo expansion, unfortunately, you know, because no oral surgeon wants to come hang out with me because they, they want to all do cancer and whatever it is they do. But we're, we're doing this endoscopically with a guide. And, you know, you don't want to do it. The ENTs will do it. And that sucks because, you know, again, they're going to do expansion and septoplasty at the same time. And it pays well, too, guys. You know, you're not going to be poor. I mean, maybe not as wealthy as guys pulling out wisdom teeth all day long. But, you know, the thing is, this is a huge impact. You know, CPAP you know, is a huge public health problem. And, and if you don't do this, you know, someone else will do it. So anyway. So there's is it a, a one-year fellowship? It's a one-year fellowship, and unfortunately, we don't teach you that much about sleep medicine. I don't teach you a whole lot about insomnia, although I could teach you more about insomnia in the post-surgical patient than anybody else can, but this is a purely surgical fellowship. You will cut a lot. You will operate, a, uh, well, I don't know a lot. I mean, this is compared to 
you know, a classic oral surgery program, not a lot, but you know, we, we are MMAs. We anywhere from five to 12 cases a month, uh, we do max expansion, but that's not all we do, right? There's nasal yeah. stuff and soft yeah. palate, that's uh, awesome. functional rhinoplasty. We force you to write a lot of papers, but my hope is this, my hope is that someone will go back to wherever the hell they came from and mm -hmm. say, okay, I'm going to start a comprehensive sleep surgical practice because sleep surgeons are going to, dentists are going to run this whole thing and sleep surgeons are going to run this whole thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fully convinced of that. If you look at, think about dentistry from pediatric dentists onwards, they will recognize sleep apnea before anybody else. In the U.S. it's already happening. So the dentists are really running this thing. And, and this is a great time to delve into the field. And then again, if I can make a pitch to the residents, dude, I'm not taking anything from you. You could do nasal surgery. I don't care. You can do the hypoglossal tongue base. You could do double jaw surgery. I mean, I'm not taking anything from your surgical practice. <laughs> you know, you're still doing all of it, but society needs you. That's the, that's so how do people issue. apply? Yeah, I was going to say, because there's, I can guarantee you after hearing this, there's going to be interest. There's sure. going to be interest from residents. So are you okay with them approaching? How do they apply? How do they get connected with you? Please approach me. I, I did take over this fellowship a couple of years ago and, and just approach me and, and, you know, ha coming again, uh, you know, coming as an oral surgeon, I, I know what it takes to, you know, you, you also want to have a pretty open-minded person, you know, mm -hmm. you gotta work with everybody, you know, you can't be like, oh, I'm just going to hog it. No, no. Yeah. Because you got to deal dude, with we're sleep Canadian. medicine. We're the nicest people around. <laughs> you are, man. It's ridiculous, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you got to deal with sleep medicine, sleep dentistry. You got to deal with, you know, weird yeah. You got to be a team player. You know, here in the Silicon Valley, I mean, I advise at least, I mean, I advise three or four startups that I'm very intimately tied with. And then there's a ton more. You know, you got to be an expert in all of that because you're the an anatomy expert. I just think that between thermolars and cancer and craniofacial, sleep is a, somewhere in between in terms of demand and in terms of where you could go with the field. I can't wait for someone that to that just go, you know, train the, and then go back to Canada and be like, hey, uh, okay, I'm going to try to pony this up and I'm just trying try to make it happen. It's, there's it's a so huge nice. market. Like, there's a huge void. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And someone will, as you said, it takes time. I was the first Canadian to do the, this is like a shameless plug, obviously. I was the first Canadian to do the, the Charlotte Fellowship. And I'm trying to bring that kind of yeah. model and that kind of practice to Canada. But once again, that's not as niche because it's orthodontic surgery, which so many Canadians do. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, as you said, a full on sleep. There isn't with anybody. The, the full algorithm. No one's like no that. One. So yeah. I think it'll be a huge yeah, opportunity. Well, let me somewhere. put it this way. I mean, I, I'd rather trade positions with you. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you want to do a double jaw on this uh, 55 year old? Come on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, Stan. Well, it was, uh, it was really great talking to you. We really, really enjoyed our time and we wanted to. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a bit of your expertise. Yeah, we learned a lot today. Today was great. No, I really appreciate you guys. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, reach out anytime. You guys are always my guests. If you guys want to come down to Palo Alto, again, the weather is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Next February, we'll take you up. Yeah, we're, defi we're definitely coming to visit California. That, that you can guarantee. Uh, thanks, guys. Our this is a cool place. Awesome. Nice chatting with you. Have a good night. Take care, guys. Take good night. Care. All right, Oscar. Well, we, we promised an interesting interview and I think we got it. Yeah. And and he's super talented, super smart, but also he's just a funny guy. Even like the things we were doing kind of before we got on a little bit off air, he's mm -hmm. a really funny guy.
really funny guy. And you can actually tell how much he loves and knows this stuff because you could see like we would we would ask him something and then he would kind of answer. And then he would go off on like this big tangent because he's just so passionate. There's so yeah. many things he wants to tell. There's like you could just tell there's so much information he wants to get across to us in such a little amount of time. He's trying to condense and really pack it in for us. And he, and he loves it. Like he absolutely lives it, loves it. And, and it's exciting. And I would say the other thing is I, it got me excited. And I'm like, yeah, if there are any Canadian residents, it seems like a great opportunity. Uh, it sounds like an amazing him. opportunity. Yeah. There's a huge need for sleep surgeons, as you said. As I mentioned, no one in Canada, you know, from an OMFS perspective has done that fellowship. It's a big thing. You know, we always talk about residents, how you get involved in an academic program or there how you, you build a niche. If you're bringing something new, that's how you get involved. Especially if they train you on um, full scope of the algorithm. Because the truth of the matter is if you went there and only did MMA, yeah, you're not okay. bringing anything you new. You learn their technique, but you're not really bringing that no. much new, right? No. A lot of people do that right but now. But if you're doing do the surgery. soft tissue stuff, mm -hmm. that's Finishing a different touches, level. Nasal, sur nasal yeah. surgery, soft posture, stuff like that. That was really impressive. So yeah, re really nice meeting Stan and chatting with him and appreciate him taking the time. Next up, our final segment, Oscar, let's jump into recommendations. Sounds good. All right, Oscar, now for our final segment on recommendations. The first thing we had to do, obviously, was you know finish our Recap, I, I told you we both have to watch Formula One Drive to survive. We both have to finish it. You'd already finished it, obviously, because yeah. you needed like two that, days to finish it. That was easy. That was a weekend. We were doing the one day uh, or one episode a day tactic, which was nice. It, it did you know, draw it out, but now I, I can openly speak about it. I wish I had that self-control and I just don't. Like, I love shows that I can binge. I almost sometimes don't watch shows on purpose just so that I can binge it when it's when all the episodes are out. Mm, okay. Yeah, fair enough. I actually... Now that we're so behind on shows and we do watch like, you know, one episode at a time. Yeah. There are a lot of shows that I watch that I, I, I do exactly what you said. I just wait till the end and then I, you know, watch all the episodes in a row rather than doing a week to week. Like, for example, Better Call Saul, which is a show that I recommended before in the past. It's coming back, but I'm going to wait until the end and then just watch all of them in a row. Yeah, so that's one thing. But my thoughts on the season, it's funny because when I when you brought it up the first time, I was only like a couple episodes in. And I was going to tell you that since I watched the entire season for the first time, like last season was the first season I watched every, like the real season of Formula One. I watched yeah. like every, every race. Yeah. Every yeah, weekend. I saw you, everything. Yeah, Cause you're still relatively a new Formula One fan. Yeah. I was only watching the show before, but now I actually watched the race every yeah. single weekend and I loved it, but I didn't enjoy the show. I was like, I already know all this stuff and all this is just PR saying, oh, Mercedes is so good. Can we beat them? Red Bull. Oh, we're our, they're our goal. We have to be the best. Oh, insert driver. I want to win. I'm competitive. It was so like... So you thought it was P too choreographed? Too choreographed, too PR, and then no, no information. But I was only two episodes in, and I think the first two episodes were like all like Red Bull and Mercedes, like everything you already know. But then it started getting into other teams that, you know, they suck. So you don't really follow them during the year, but like you learn more about Haas. And I think it was Alpine one episode, and then McLaren you kind of know about, but still like... I love the episodes of, oh, Williams was a good one. I yeah. love the episodes about all the other teams. Yeah, and I actually couldn't agree with you more on that. So I'm a huge F1 fan. So I knew everything about Mercedes anyway. Like I read all the articles. So what, what I wasn't going to learn anything new. I'm like, okay, this is everything I've seen. But yeah, I don't care about Haas during the season. And I don't care about Williams because they suck. But what, getting to know Gunter Steiner and him climbing a mountain and all the other things. Yeah, there, that looked like was, a nice mountain. Okay, that looked unbelievable. I was like, wow, <laughs> this guy gets way more yeah. credit than I was going to give him. When they were like, it's a long way to go. And they point to the mountain in the distance. You're like, 
uh, what? Yeah. When he said he was going for a hike, I'm like, oh, okay, this older guy is going to go for a hike. And then I'm like, okay, he just climbed Everest there in that episode. So I don't know what's going on. But I think I agree with you completely in that that was my favorite part of the show was watching all the information on the small teams and really how much more drama they have to compete with. It's just a lot harder for them, but it was super interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And then the thing I really enjoyed was the actual behind the scenes stuff. So I find when they're doing interviews, it's all PR and like, you know, mumbo jumbo, nothing. But when they're just filming them and they're actually at work and showing stuff, I really like it. They show like how they analyze the data, how they do their practicing, what is their strategy, uh, the behind the scenes. I can't believe they actually got on tape when they filmed Total Wolf telling George Russell, like, you are coming to Mercedes. Like, so I heard that is staged. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought this is too perfect. This is like ridiculous. But I heard that George already knew at that point. Oh, because I was going to say it, it was surprising that they would film that like they that wouldn't be a private thing, but it looked genuine. So I guess they yeah. did a good job acting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I think it was like the first time in public. But I think behind the scenes, they would have had here. He was already aware. Mm, yeah. OK. So, yeah. So I love the mid portion of the season near the end. Obviously, everyone that watched you know I hated last, the end. you know, I hated the end. But even putting aside like the result of the race that you hate, for me, it was more. I thought they did a good job how they dedicated so many episodes at the end for like the final three races because it was crazy. Like for, for everyone who followed the season, like it was the wildest thing. Like even I've ever seen. Obviously, my first season, but yeah. even in general sports, you just oh. know that that doesn't happen. No. And I thought they did a great job of going like third race, uh, third last race, second last race, and then the last race. The only thing that annoyed me was. The last race was the wildest, like, even if you watched every Formula One season ever, the last race was the craziest moment in the history of Formula One. From a, they were tied on points to Hamilton, or to Hamilton cut off for Sapin, he should have been penalized, to Hamilton's obviously going to win, to the first safety car drama. Then you have the, uh, Hamilton's obviously going to win, there's eight laps left, he, there's no way he's going to catch him. Then you have safety car crash by Latifi. Then you have all the drama that goes into it. And then you have the rules that were completely broken illegitimately to obviously hand Red Bull the win. And they kind of went into it. But I felt like this was the best time to just show a little, you know, you know how Netflix is great with those like, little graphics yes. to show about like, yes. what are the rules? And this I, is that. I agree. I think they dropped the ball there. They didn't focus on it enough. And they, they kind of just ended. I was like, are you serious? This is yeah. what you're going to do? And they ended with like a stupid like total of like everyone is a target next year. It's like, dude, no, go into like the analyst, show all the coverage after how controversial and, that and how ending was. how upset people were. Like, it was really, a big deal. Uh, it was. It still was a big deal. Like even at the beginning of this season, I feel like we're mm -hmm. almost a Formula One like podcast now, not even an oral surgery podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess, well, to be honest, going forward, we have, we'll always have this episode where we're talking about Drive to Survive. We'll always have like maybe the end of the 401 season. Yeah. But we're talking about how we're looking forward to try to survive. And then we'll have, so hopefully it'll just be like two episodes a year. Yeah. Well, you know, in June, we're going to talk about the Canadian one, the Montreal Grand Prix. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, that. That's, so. true. <laughs> that's true. But uh, anyways, long story short, last season was the greatest season ever. It was one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen in my life. My dad and my brother don't watch Formula One. Oh, I they told don't? Them, like, no, they don't watch okay. it. I told them to start watching the Netflix show. So they are. But... I told them I was at my dad's place for the last race. And I was like, listen, let me just explain. Like, drivers are tied on points. This never happens. This is the last race. It's two hours long. Just come watch. I'll explain it to you. So my dad and brother have watched one Formula race ever. And it was that one. Wow. That is an amazing race to watch. Like, imagine that's yeah. your only race you ever watch. You don't need to watch another one. No, probably not. No. Yeah. Like, it's it not going to be more exciting than that. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's enough about uh, Formula One. So, Oscar, let's get into your recommendation. What do you have? 
Yeah. So funny enough, this last last month, my goal has been to watch, I guess, less TV or, or waste, not waste because I do enjoy watching TV, but like maybe spend less time doing it. So my recommendation is trying to kind of stay active or, or I guess my goal was being trying to stay active and, and get back in shape. And honestly, I think it's it's been a great month for me. Like I feel better. I have more energy. I'm probably way less grumpy. You can ask my wife. She'll probably attest to that too. <laughs> so my recommendation would be try to get back to being active to anyone who has like lost being active. COVID with, for me was, was kind of difficult in the sense that I didn't have the motivation. I'm not a person that likes working out at home once the gym's really opened back up. And now I've made it a goal to start going back to the gym and eating healthy. And my recommendation is, is do that because I have felt really, really much, much better over the last month when I've been doing that. You find more energized, you feel better kind of thing? Yeah, like the, the days just, I, I don't seem as tired throughout the day. I'm like, wow, I'm getting up earlier to work out, but I still have more energy than whatever. I was gonna ask you, do you work out before work or after work? So it's kind of a split now. Some days I work out before, some days I work out after. And usually I'm not a person that likes to work out before. I'd rather sleep for sure, but I've been doing it some days and, and I enjoy it. And I go to work and I feel like energized in the morning. So I would say definitely try to get moving if you can. Huh. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I, I'm also trying my best to stay active. Right now, it's good because things are kind of more open. So I don't have any kind of workout stuff at home. So I can't really work at home. But the apartment does have a gym in the in the oh, lobby. That's amazing. Yeah, so they have a treadmill. They have actually have, do have some weights and machines and stuff like that. But it's mostly just a treadmill for cardio kind of thing. And then now that the weather's getting better, uh, I can run outside, which is kind of nice. And the last thing is I play indoor soccer once a week. And I play indoor hockey once a week or ice hockey once a week. Oh, that's great. So that's like huge cardio, a way to stay in the sports. And it's, it's where really, are you playing really your indoor soccer? In Mississauga. Nice. At the Hershey Center? Men's League. Uh, yeah. Now it's called Paramount Fine Food Center. Oh, that's yes. Yeah, they switch its names. Yeah. Yeah. It's his name. Yeah. But yeah. So I play there in, in the men's league. Is your team decent? You guys are atrocious. We're pretty good. Oh, nice. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. We're actually pretty good. We're, we're at a good level too where we're competitive in every game we don't win every game but we're competitive in every single well, game but that's the best way to play right like you don't want to play in a division that's too low and you're just mm -hmm. pumping every team and then you don't want to play in a division that's too high and then it's just... really boring if you play a team and you're like three nothing up in five minutes it's actually a really boring oh yeah. and, i much and, prefer the close games and that's more likely in a division you're probably gonna get hurt yeah that's true actually right like it's gonna be players that are just gonna be a little bit more sloppy and if you're beating them by a lot they're just gonna have some dirty tackles yeah no i think that's the best where you're in a competitive league I guess we know how you play when once you start losing. We don't lose. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Well, I mean, my recommendation is actually kind of sports themed back to TV, obviously. You know, we talk a lot about sports and everyone that knows me knows I'll talk endlessly about sports. You know, I'll talk about I can talk about tennis. I'll watch darts. Um, if it's got a ref, I'm watching it, man. Exactly. Yeah. But the the three main sports I follow like religiously are soccer, NBA, okay. and the NFL. Okay. But a lot of people always ask, you know, you got work, you got call, you got kid, you know, wife, you have the family, you know, a million things going on. You just talk about sports and exercising. How do you have time to watch all this? And the truth is, I don't have time to watch it all. So I pretty much can't watch full sporting events or full games of anything anymore. Yeah. They're Obviously, big. Yeah. If it's a big game like El Clasico or Super Bowl. Oh, don't or, talk about El Clasico. You got pummeled last one. Yeah. He got destroyed. Yeah. Nothing. Super Bowl, big playoff yeah, game, stuff like that. Yeah, you'll make time for that. You'll make the time for that. But when it comes to you know regular season or on a week to week basis, my recommendation was going to be try and find a highlight show or highlight program that you really enjoy and just watch that instead. So the ones that I brought up that I watch pretty much religiously that I find really good are 
So for basketball, it's called Inside the NBA. Yeah. It's once or twice a week. It's about an hour long. And they'll go through like the highlights of that night, but then they'll just talk about the league in general. And it's like really funny. It's really well done. Great panel. Got Shaq, Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and uh, Ernie Johnson. That's a great lineup. It's like the best lineup. It's it's hilarious. They make fun of it. It's just really, really well done. So if you like basketball, like the NBA, you can't watch the regular season. You don't have time to watch games, but you just want to kind of know what's going on in the league. Definitely watch that. It's really good. It's called Inside the NBA. Next up for soccer. So I follow the Premier League and the Champions League. Premier League, pretty much once a week on the weekend, it's called Match of the Day is the program. And it's it's like a BBC program. It's the British highlight show. And all they do is they show highlights. So hold on, hold on. Your team is Arsenal, right? Yeah. So what highlights are they showing? <laughs> they're showing <laughs> they're showing all the losses, unfortunately. <laughs> I know. You were talking about uh, Real Madrid. I mean, rough week for Arsenal, oh. too. Let's just, put, let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So they'll show extended highlights of all the games. It's really well done. It's only like, you know, eight to ten minutes per game. It's all the best moments. And then the oh, interviews after. This one I actually haven't heard of. That's good. Oh, it's 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 probably the best sports highlight show like ever. It's been going on for like 50 something years, maybe even longer. It's 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 like people watch it religiously in England. So I watch that. And then I only watch the the highlights, obviously. This sounds obvious, but I watch the highlights of the of the teams that I care about because yeah. I used to watch the entire show every time, but once again, you don't have time for this. So yeah. I pick like the five teams that I like watching and I just watch the highlights Who of the Who cares about Wolves? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Who no. cares about that? I just watch usually the top five. Yeah. So that's for soccer. Champions League, same thing. It's not match of the day, but they usually have like a highlight show. You just watch that. And then for NFL. So NFL has NFL Game Pass. Right now in Canada, it's on DAZN, D-A-Z-N. But in the States, it's called NFL Game Pass. Uh, wherever you are, I mean, just look up NFL Game Pass, where to watch it. And what's beautiful is after every game, they take the three, three and a half hour NFL game and they compress it into like 40 minutes. Oh, that's awesome. So you can watch an entire, so for example, one week I'll say, oh, this matchup was amazing. So I'll pick that team and I'll just watch the compressed version. It's 40 minutes. It's the entire game. That's great. So that's how, that's how I kind of keep up with the leagues and, yeah. and watching highlights. And I just think, you know, we have a lot of people that really like sports, but there's just no time to watch games and I don't blame you. And that's a nice way I, to stay up to date. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you watch that already, well, like watch a highlight show like Sports Center. The reason I don't like things like Sports Center is, I find the time spent on the game and the highlights is a minute and the time talking by these people is like nine minutes. And it's just like, I don't really care about the analysts or what you people think. All I want to know is just I want to watch the sport. Yeah. Just put the clip on and stop talking. Exactly. So too much, too much talking heads I find on the sports center and things like that. But that's what I want to say. I just kind of, those are the highlight shows I watch and that's how I keep up to date on the sports world. No. And I think that's important because like, like you said, there's probably a lot of us that watch a lot of sports. And there's probably a lot of us that are just as busy as you are, right? Have their practice, have their kids, have things to do, and are, they feel like they're missing out. That's a good way to keep up for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Anyways, that concludes our episode number 21 for Teeth and Titanium. This was our April episode. Oscar, next month, two-year anniversary. I'm excited. Month after that, great guest. Great guest lined up. Yeah. Then a month no spoilers, but great guest lined up. And month after that is? That's a big one live in yeah. iceland yeah that's we've we've started brainstorming we're getting pretty pumped for this we've got some ideas floating around honestly it's just an exciting time to do it and you know the, the other thing is that's going to be a lot of oral surgeons in the same group it'll be nice to see everybody so it'll be a good time for sure one question cena raised yesterday was how are we going to handle hecklers and then i told cena cena you're not even coming so i don't want to hear from you exactly <laughs> 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 question denied yeah yeah cena don't talk to me unless you're coming in july 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, once again, if you want to reach out, please do. Teeth and Titanium, OMFS at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to submit something for Journal Club or a resident reminder or a guest or you want to be a guest, just let us know. We definitely would love to have you on the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care, guys.